Well, good day, folks, and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode 33 of the program where we look at the world of aviation from an Australia Pacific point of view. On a wet and freezing cold afternoon here in Melbourne, Australia, I'm Steve Vischer, and joining me as always is Grant McHeron. G'day, mate. Hey, mate, how you going? Oh, just trying to rug up and uh, keep away from the cold at the moment. It's uh, rather miserable here today. Yeah, I think it's only about 15 degrees Celsius. Blech. <laughs> Pretty ordinary. Now, folks, we're going to go back to the uh, news and comment format this week. We haven't done it for a few episodes, so uh, joining us on the line this week to make us sound vaguely intelligent from the uh, plain talking blog at crocky.com.au is Ben Sanderlands. Hi, Ben. G'day, guys. And uh, how's the weather where you are, mate? I'm hoping it's a little bit warmer than where we are. Uh, it's about 11 degrees. Uh, I'm uh, just under 1,000 litres, so it gets a little bit cool around here, but it's, it's way too warm for this time of year. Wow. Yeah, okay, because you're... You are in the in, in the mountains out near Canberra area, aren't you? Yeah, sort of Southern Highlands, uh, more more closer to Canberra than uh, than Sydney. Yeah, so it's um, it's we're, we're we're communicating with you via landline and through the miracle of electronics, it's still hanging together despite uh, what usually happens in that area. <laughs> okay, well we've got a few a few topics to go through, but I thought the first thing we might start with is a uh, a blog posting you've just released today, actually, on composites. Yeah, look, I had a go at this. I, I uh, didn't expect to. I, NASA had a study called N plus 3, and that's all about airliners of the future. Very interesting. Uh, produced a bit of fun, five new designs, which were, were quite radical with nice photos. And then I got into the technical papers, and these technical papers cast quite a different light on the use of composite structures, thin composite structures, as we're seeing uh, being advanced by Boeing and Airbus. And uh, it led me to the, to the view that we are in a situation where the selling of the benefits of new composite applications in airliners has outpaced, if you wish, uh, the investment in, uh, in new engineering and technology. And uh, I think we are looking at a, a bit of a disappointment in many respects with both, both the 787 and the A350 family. And if you look hard enough, you can see all of the clues come into, come into view. Yeah, it just came out through through John Ostrauer and his um, in his blog that uh, the delay that Boeing experienced recently, that was supposedly to allow suppliers to align and get everything back on order, was actually because of some problems they found with um, manufacturing down in the tail. Yes, it was. Uh, they had uh, failed to account for thermal stress in some sections of the uh, of the tail and uh, and the fastener, the particular type of fastener they used down there. Uh, it was really quite a shock to everybody. Uh, and a fair bit of name name calling uh, has been going on uh, between uh, Boeing and uh, and the and the uh, supplier, um, and, and that that's a shock. That's that's a disappointment. I mean, I uh, I'm well and truly on the record and committed in many years ago to how wonderful the Dreamliner was going to be. I've been uh, very severe, I think, uh, in recent years on the. Uh, communication of uh, the progress and the fact that it's been delayed and the fact that we were made promises which could not have been kept in, uh, in with what we learned in hindsight. But I still want to see the damn thing fly. I want to fly in that. I want to sit in that cabin, the real cabin with the big windows and uh, and experience it as I do with the uh, A350. I'm, I'm, I'm an agnostic uh, plane uh, freak, I suppose. I, I like all new aircraft. And uh, I think we're seeing a situation where, uh, in fact, I know it from what they're saying, where these new designs are not going to deliver the, uh, the benefits in weight saving and range that were originally promised. I'm, I'm not saying they won't be brilliant aircraft in due course, but what we seem to be getting a very strong signal about 
is that the earlier versions are going to disappoint. It's a case of teething problems, I guess, with these new technologies, Ben, I guess. We're seeing this on the military side of things too, aren't we, where you know, huge promises are being made and uh, huge, I guess, marketing statements are being made. But uh, in reality, back here in the real world, it takes time to develop these technologies and we're talking you know, many, many years. We are indeed. And I think one of the, one of the phenomenons, bad, negative things about uh, contemporary business uh, activity is the excessive use of hype and marketing. I, I think there's a big disconnection between reality goes on in the commercial world, and I'm not just talking about aerospace here, mm. uh, and what's actually being delivered. There, there is a push to have the market-delivered reality uh, foisted upon people, and um, then when the results come out, they're sort of explained away or ignored. And, and I find it very disappointing. It's a much bigger problem than, than airlines and airliners, uh, but it is apparent, I think, in both Boeing and Airbus. Yeah, we've seen it with the A380, we're seeing it with the 787, it's starting to show with the A350, and uh, you're right, it's not just aerospace, so we've we've seen it a lot with uh, here in Australia with Telstra, um, they did a massive transformation project that any idiot could pra- practically could have seen that if, if you had any, if you'd ever done any looking at the history of IT projects, their plan for a big bang transformation was a complete disaster just waiting to happen. And I think you're right, marketing, accounting, they just pushed it through. Some senior managers who wanted to get their bonus, a whole raft of middle managers who, who didn't have the um, intestinal fortitude to stand up and say, this is crud, because that would mean probably their job and their mortgage and their life and a whole lot of suppliers who could see the crud, but hey, they were making money no matter what, so they weren't going to raise the issue. And um, yeah, we're seeing the same kind of thing here, I think, with the 787, this whole whole new composites area. My, my fear is, I've blogged about this a couple of times, is that um, the 787 will be the new de Havilland Comet in terms of it was all new stuff that we were doing that everyone thought they understood and yet uh, she fell apart in the air and it took a few of them before they figured out what was going wrong. Fortunately, we seem to have found most of the problems on the ground so far. Yes, I'd be, I'd be very ter- terrified of uh, the, the comet happening. I can remember as a boy... Um Back in the 50s, the comet disasters, and uh, uh, even then, uh, it, I, I had to do a bit of air travel. My dad uh, was a marine engineer, and uh, we'd fly part of the way sometimes, and he'd take me, take me overseas, and uh, never flew on a comet, mind you. But uh, it was it, it had a huge impact on public confidence, um, and we've seen public confidence rattled in the DC-10, and I really don't want to see public confidence rattled in the, the 787 or the 350 at all. Uh, look, well, we even had problems with public conf- confidence in the A3, A320 in the early days, you know, um, we had the plane was going to spiral out of control uh, yeah. uh, when one engine failed, and so on and so forth. And so it's hard for the media, and it's even harder today because there's less of the media left to actually ask sensible questions and try to pursue answers. I mean, we we also saw that with the seven three seven with the uh, rudder actuator. We did indeed. I, actually, actually, I was uh, that that is a very bad story in my, in my opinion. There was a determined effort, I believe, to to keep the truth from coming out up until the point where it could no longer be kept in. Uh, I think uh, Byron Okahito, the uh, reporter on the uh, Seattle, uh, I think it was the Seattle PI, it may have been the Times, who, who actually won a Pulitzer Prize for his uh, for his reporting. That was an incredibly brave and determined person. And look, it was a blemish uh, on Boeing uh, at the time. There were incidents. Uh, there were incidents in Australia. Uh, I hunted down an incident involving a TAA. In fact, an Australian Airlines yep. uh, liveried uh, 737-300 on approach to Canberra, and I tracked down. It was in the records and hidden away in the library. A similar incident involving an ANSET 737-200 over the Grampians. Oh wow! 
Uh, mind you, uh, like most of those incidents, the pilots overcame them. The trouble was there were several very high-profile incidents that involved uh, a complete loss of life, and uh, mm. that uh, that did, I think, uh, was one of the most sobering things that had happened. And I, I look, I remember the pilots were blamed. There were special rotor winds blamed. There were all everything was blamed except the fact that there was a design flaw in the airliner. Yeah. That one, that well, that is a pretty full-on story. That one. The, uh, well, I, I hope you're wrong about uh, the uh, the seven eight seven becoming another comet. For <clears throat> we um, we definitely don't need that. But I, I do <laughs> keep asking questions, and I keep trying to monitor the health of the seven eight seven order with Qantas. I've caught them basically keeping incorrect information in the market, and I did blog about this extensively, and it led to Boeing actually issuing a statement contradicting. Uh, Qantas about about the uh, fact that it was getting uh, 787-9s from July 2013 and uh, Boeing yeah. made it very clear because Air New Zealand was jumping up and down and uh, not being very happy about it that uh, <laughs> Air New Zealand was going to they were the launch customer and they weren't getting their first jet on current planning until December 2013 Yeah and yet Qantas is running around saying they'd have theirs six months earlier and that was in official statements to the uh, stock exchange wasn't it? It was indeed, they made that statement in July the 26th last year, and I have challenged them on a number of occasions to correct it, and I do think that they, they owe us all a correction. Definitely. The market definitely needs to hear that one, because, uh, I mean, you know, ASIC and, and so on could take them up for false comments. Uh, they, they might. I actually, I, I don't hold out any um, um, <laughs> belief in uh, <laughs> um, uh capabilities in Australia, nor do I think Qantas has, has disadvantaged its shareholders at this stage, but I do believe that full information and up-to-date information is a prerequisite. So I'm not uh, I'm not saying that Qantas has done something massively wrong. I just think it's something that should be corrected. And uh, we all want to see the, the new planes come, and we want to know when they're coming. And we want to see them succeed. But, I mean, one of the things that we learnt with the Beech, Beechcraft Starship was the uh, that it wound up being heavily overweight and had all sorts of problems because composites didn't scale as well. And we're seeing the same kind of thing with the 787. And, and as you mentioned in your blog post, the the need that, yes, while composites are strong and light, they don't have some of the protection that is required for lightning protection especially. They've got, had to go and put metal mesh inside the um, the wing and so on and the body. Indeed, indeed. Now, that, that is a big problem. If we're going to have to use a huge amount of metal to make uh, plastics uh, behave like metal... Um, might as well uh, use, might as well use maybe metal. Maybe we should with. just uh, use the metal until we yeah. can get the composite side of things right. There's some fantastic possibilities in composite technology. This is the, one of the great things about these NASA papers that I, I've linked to. They, they make tremendous reading, and you would come away from reading them with a conviction that composites are going to deliver fantastic things, but not next year, and maybe not within the decade. It's going to be a while longer, and these these first couple of aircraft, the the 787 and the A350 are, are going to find a lot of the problems that will be overcome for the next set. Well, I have a view that uh, the the good news to the uh, to to our somewhat uh, dour view here uh, is that the 330 series and the 777 series will continue to sell like hotcakes because of their proven designs. They're incredibly successful for their uh, for their sweet spots in uh, range payload, and so both Boeing and Airbus, I suspect, they're going to sell a lot more. Uh, 330s and 777s than they had originally intended had the 787 uh, uh, you know, started in commercial service let's say way back in 2008 and uh, had the 350 actually um, arrived somewhat sooner than it did. 
that's an interesting point in itself. I mean, to what advantage is it to keep developing these new types if they're having such such uh, success run with the older types? Uh, perhaps they should spend uh, more effort, maybe just improving those types if if that's what the market wants. And there's uh, you know the market is showing no signs that it needs anything else. Why bother developing anything else to start with? I mean, it's a, it's a huge investment to develop you know new airframes and new designs when you know basically the designs they've got work for them now. I think, Steve, that's a tremendous point to make. It's especially apparent at the moment in the uh, search for or the dilemma between choosing between a re-engined uh, 737 and an all-new body type, and the same dilemma confronts Airbus. And it's interesting at the moment because I think that we are seeing a lot of signalling going on between Boeing and Airbus as to what their various intentions are. Uh, and, and as you say... The 737 is an incredibly successful jet now. If they re-engine it, they diminish the book value, the residual value of the existing investment in 737, so that's a bit of a negative for major customers, let's say, like Ryanair uh, and, uh, and Southwest. Uh, but on the other hand, if they go ahead with an all-new airliner, uh, and, and obviously they will at some stage, that is a huge investment too. And you have to actually convince the customer that there's a 20% improvement, if you like, uh, in direct operating costs, uh, that the jet is easier to turn, that the jet will do all sorts of things that the current uh, single-aisle families can't do. Now, both Airbus and Boeing, I think, are going to come up with really exciting proposals for a brand new, totally different family of single-aisle or quasi-wide-body jets, because they're all talking about very exotic sorts of solutions to the problem. In the interim, they've got this enormous problem. They've got big, powerful customers who love the current products that they're producing. They're very profitable to produce. They've amortised all of the development costs, and so that is the perfect dilemma. What do we do? When do we, when do we get off the cash cow and, uh, and go for the next cash cow, if you wish? A couple of pointers on that. Slightly contrarian, though, is that customers are starting to ask for the big steps. They want to see bigger oil savings. I mean, everyone talks green, but the reality is if you're green, you're saving oil, which means you're saving mm. money. So there's that starting to bubble up now, and it's getting more and more of an issue. That the, yep, the customers love the aircraft. They're doing good, but the airlines have to cut back the oil consumption. And, and as soon as oil prices go through the roof again, you're going to see that come back, that, that whole request for... Um, we need something that's not just an incremental improvement on a by adding winglets or slightly improved yep. engines. We're going to want to see that that complete thing. And the other part is that there's the old adage that if you don't get ready to um, you know to cannibalise your own income stream by introducing something that does compete internally with your own product, someone else will. <laughs> yes, I know, yeah, and but, that's the funny who? thing, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, and we've even got China now in the background, and I I don't believe we're correct in writing off the uh, the new in, the new investment in, in high tech airliners that China mm-hmm. has foreshadowed. I know they've got a long way to go, but we'd be very unwise to assume they can't get there by the middle of the next decade. Well, I mean, the the for- forecast area for growth is Asia Pacific. That's where the big growth is coming. All the manufacturers have agreed. That's where all the airlines are going to be booming. It's going to be that Middle East, Asia Pacific. Now, imagine if if this projected growth in China turns around because China says buy native, buy local. Mm. And all well, of a sudden, are, there, there are reports they're putting pressure on people to uh, to the big three Chinese carriers to order the C919, mm-hmm. as it's currently known, which looks on the superficial glance at the models to be basically um, an A321. It's like an A321 with an accent. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> but, you know, you, you raise a good point. I, I don't know how it'll pan out, but if Boeing is sending a clear signal they're going to do the all-new jet. Obviously, the invitation to Airbus will be, we'll re-engine the 320. We're going to have a, a six-year 
development period in which we're going to look really good for uh, new new orders, uh, and uh, we don't have a, a, a Southwest or a Ryanair to uh, think about in that regards. And uh, and and oh, and by the way, we'll do an all new jet as well, but we'll do it four years after you, so we can make sure we don't quite uh, trip over our, our feet and and the way. It, it is a terrible dilemma. That's why I think what we're seeing is not a firm strategy from either manufacturer. We're seeing a lot of signals being sent to try and work out uh, you know, where the advantage is. It's like two people wrestling at the start of the match where they're, yeah. where they're grappling and they're, they're, they're moving around the, uh, the wrestling uh, area trying not to put a foot outside into, into, into touch. Yep. While uh, Airbus doesn't have the Ryanairs and Southwest, they do have AirAsia and Jetstar who are now formed this agreement to uh, exercise their combined muscle and flex on... Uh, on aircraft designs and so on. So there is that factor that, that can play into um, maybe holding Airbus back a little or at least uh, giving mm. them the equivalent of what Boeing has with those other two. But, uh, yeah, the, the big wild cards I'm seeing also are um, Bombardier with their famous C-Series. Mm. And you can't rule that one out no matter <laughs> no, what. And Embraer uh, are definitely looking at getting into a bigger area. Yes, I finally said that. They've taken the plunge. They've been so critical about that in recent years, and I noticed the language from Embraer has, in fact, changed, hasn't it? That's the thing is that you know uh, everyone's looking at Boeing Airbus, Boeing Airbus, or lockstep, or they're going up against each other, and they're seeing just those two giants. And, and we've seen it happen so many times in other industries, and I, admittedly in the IT industry it's a lot easier to do this kind of stuff. Your startup costs are lower. But somebody can inevitably comes along and boom, they take you. They come out from left field and they take your sales and, and you're there as the incumbent going, Where did, what happened? How did I suddenly wind up on the sidelines? So with the China COMAC, the C919, and don't rule out the fact that China and India are now the two. They're, they're the barbarians against the new Rome of the US in a way. It's, it's, they're the ones that are going to take over when um, the, the US will inevitably recede. I, I know no one likes me saying this, but... Um, yeah, you can. You can That's see. That's a good analogy. I'm, I'm frantically taking notes here to see if I can't uh, steal some of those uh, metaphors. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> well, it's obviously there's obviously a market for these smaller type planes coming out. We've seen Virgin Blue with the you know with the Embraers, the jungle jets as they call them. Uh, yep. They seem to be quite happy with those aircraft. I think they might have had a few uh, teething problems with them when they first came on stream, but you know we're a few years down the track now with those those smaller aircraft operating out into the regional areas. So there's obviously a market for the smaller aircraft in this country at least. Um, would that be the case so much in you know in in Asia? I'm not sure, to be perfectly honest. Uh, what I do know uh, from my Canberra experience is the Embraer has finally become a reasonably reliable aircraft, uh, and it's become a very popular aircraft out of Canberra. It is certainly more than an equal for a service on a Q400. But the question remains lodged in my brain what John Borghetti at Virgin Blue might do. Will he, in fact, also go down the turboprop path because the operating economics of the Q400 on, let's say, Canberra, Sydney, are so fantastically good that no matter how successful you are with the E-Jet, the Q400 is, you know, it killed you when it comes to, um, to how much money you can make. And it had its reliability problems too. And, mm-hmm. and both the Q400 and the, uh, and the Embraer seem to have overcome that to an extent. I, I think, um, I, I, well, Borgetti has not uh, played any of his cards as yet, but there have been persistent rumours that uh, Virgin is looking at a turboprop type, and it could, of course, be an ATR, uh, to come in at that, those very short-haul, uh, short uh, higher-frequency routes where it would stand to save a fair bit of money. Now, it is, it is funny you've mentioned uh, Virgin because there's a few rumours running around about uh, 
now that uh, you know, naturally with the changeover at the top from Brett Godfrey to John Borchetti, you just know there's there's going to be some change coming along. He hasn't flexed his muscle yet. He hasn't really shown where he's going. But uh, mm. the the rumors are running rife. We're seeing them on Twitter and in in the news and um, through discussions with people all around the place. And it's just running rife. It's an amazing time for watching rumors, actually. And, and one of the thing, one of the rumors out there is about fleet changes. The concept that VB may drop the 175 but keep the Embraer 190s. That they want to get triple seven two hundred, the um, LR long ranges. They may even go for A three thirties, which apparently has Boeing going. No, no, no. Here, have a seven six seven four hundred for free. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, what are you, are you hearing? Many of these rumors. I've heard all of them. This is the confusing thing. I think uh, it's very hard to uh, pick and choose. I do know that John Borghetti um, is very impressed with the 330 economics, and he's very impressed with it uh, on ranges of up to nine hours duration, which covers a lot of uh, a lot of Asian potential. And I do know um, I have had this conversation with Brett Godfrey, but he also acknowledges the uh, the merits of the 330 over those ranges. Uh, however. Brett certainly didn't uh, give away any uh, any uh, special trade secrets here. Uh, he loves the triple seven. He loves the seven three seven, and both types are actually performing extraordinarily well for Virgin Blue. So so why wouldn't he? Uh, but John is now in control of Virgin Blue, and he will make the call on fleet. And uh, the 767, I can, can tell you on good authority, was seriously considered by Virgin Blue much earlier in the decade uh, when they thought about the ultimate need, and it's a need that's getting closer every day, to have a wide-bodied type on what, for Qantas, are the city, city flyer route. Yeah. Now, as a passenger, I actually love the 767. I love that 7 across format and economy. Uh, I much prefer it to the 8, eight across format and the 330. I think really comes down to, to price. The 767 is being sold new uh, by Boeing at very low prices, and the, the production line is still open. So there could be a fantastic bargain there, which Virgin Blue simply can't walk past. On the other hand, the 330 has more asset value on the books. It, it will retain its value better. Uh, it's clearly a jet which can be applied more successfully to longer range routes as well. So you get more versatility out of the 330, providing you could manage the gate side of things correctly, which quite frankly at the moment escapes even Qantas. Um, <laughs> or the 767, which really is the most delightful plane to fly on between, say, Sydney and Melbourne or Sydney and Brisbane. It's a hard choice. And at the end of the day, I think it'll come down to one manufacturer or the other making a compelling offer. Would yeah. be interesting too to see them operate those on some of the longer haul uh, transcontinental flights. For instance, I flew with Virgin Blue across to Perth last month. On uh, I think we had a uh, 800 series across and a 700 series back 737, and the load factors were, were you know 100 percent on those, both those flights. Mm. And and every time you know every time I, I do a longer flight across the country, that always seems to be full. So there's obviously a market there, perhaps for bigger planes. It seems it seems to me like they'd fill them. I believe you're right. I've, I've got no doubt you're, you're right there. Uh, and of course, I think on the Perth routes, quite frankly, the 737 or the 320 is a bit of a pain. It's nice to get in the bigger jet. Definitely. And and also the other factor in here is not just uh, the number of people and load factors, it's landing slots. Uh, this is something I think the US is going to have to contend with very soon as as all the dust settles from United Continental and uh, and all the other mergers going on, the, the Delta Northwest, is uh, that the uh, transport Department of Transport may take some slots away because, yeah. face it, American airports have got too many flights booked for their capacity and this is a way of taking it back. But if you've still got all these people you've got to move, guess what? You have to, uh, instead of using you these little aircraft, you've got to... Yeah. 
No, you, do, you do have to upscale. There's, no, there's absolutely no doubt about that. I think it's very important to notice that both Airbus and Boeing in their references to the um, the new body, narrow, uh, you know, A320, 737-sized aircraft, are talking about a family which will, in effect, be 25% bigger anyhow. They are talking about 150 seats up to about 250 seats. Mm. And, and this is really interesting. I, I think... When you look at, if you take the base, the view that over the next 10 years, passenger growth will be somewhere in the vicinity of 4% or more on average, even in the mature markets, you have to upscale the size of what are today's 737s and 320s anyhow. Yep. Now, this may well be a pointer to what actually happens, that the those airlines that do need to stay with the uh, 320, 737 size We'll, we'll get the option of re-engined aircraft from one or both manufacturers. And on the other hand, coming in over the top of them will be a family of airliners, again from both manufacturers, which will go right up to the size of the 757, uh, or indeed the A300. And you'll notice that, that both those sized air jets have never really been replaced. They're definitely going to have to do something about the barrel width, because, I mean, the 757 is just too dang long. If you're down the oh, back, you've got it a is. long walk. Especially <laughs> the 300. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Yes, but I mean, looking at Virgin with their, their fleet issues, um, the A330 may be pretty nice, and yeah, it, you're right, it does have a better resale value later because it's it's newer, it's more more marketable than the than that 767-400, but now, now suddenly you've got to go from speaking various dialects of English to learning a whole different language, effectively, yes. by having Airbus in there. Your pilots have to think totally differently, uh, you've got to have a, a complete different group of ground support trained all your equipment is different whereas a 767 yes okay it's a different aircraft to a 73 or a 777 but it's still Boeing it still flies the Boeing way you don't have to have quite that bigger disconnect and between learning to fly one and the other I think that's what that's why I'm sitting on the fence to the point of being severely uncomfortable I, <laughs> I really uh, I really couldn't pick uh, which way um, yeah. Virgin Blue will go uh, but I must say either way would be pretty damn good. Well, of course, with Borghetti at the top now, of course, he's come from Qantas, and you know they've got quite a lot of experience operating the 330, so it's, it's not like he would be unfamiliar with the issues uh, involved in, in training up their cabin crews and their tech crews and such like. Oh, I, I don't think John is in any way daunted by, um, by, by an Airbus uh, solution to a particular need. If we go out 10 years, and I, ha I have said this for quite some time, I suppose it's my contrarian nature, but at the end of the decade or the next 10-year period, Virgin Blue is either going to be in 380s or it's not going to be in the game. And those 380s would be domestic? Uh, I hope not. <laughs> you know, I really do like the 380 as, a, as an experience, but uh, I don't see it yet as a domestic aircraft. I do see it. Look, I, I know it sounds ridiculous, but toward the end of the uh, 2020s, that's an entirely different matter. Who would have thought back in the days of the Vickers Viscount or the DC-6B that we'd ever see anything as big as uh, an A330 or a 767 on a City Flyer route? Yeah. Um, if you if you apply the maths uh, that uh, this market is mature but will continue to discreetly grow over the next 10 to 15 years, and I believe that's the case because I don't believe we'll get high-speed rail between now <laughs> and then, then, then you are going to need 
a much larger jet, and you will see the A380 used, I think, on comparatively short routes in Asia. Uh, not necessarily within Japan, which has a really good and, and improving Shinkansen network, and not necessarily between all of the major centres of China, but you will see it happen. Places like uh, Taipei to Shanghai, you can see it happening there because basically they can't build a rail <laughs> network mm-hmm. uh, between them. I, I think we are going to see the 330 um, go down paths that uh, that most of us thought were a bit fantastical uh, up to five or six years ago. As an A380 with 800 passengers doing short, frequent turnarounds, which I don't, I don't know if it was ever designed with that in mind, doing, you know, like frequent two-hour, five five runs a day kind of flights. Um, put- no, but if you do if you do the mass, if you look at Sydney Airport, and I'm, I think Melbourne Airport, I haven't, get, haven't seen the Melbourne gates, but... Uh, the gates at Sydney for the 380 are actually more efficient at turning that jet than uh, the gates at T2 are for turning a 737. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you've got three large doors on two levels working at Sydney Airport, you're on and off that plane, and you're down the aisles, which are much much easier to navigate than the 737 aisle really quickly. It is a very easy aircraft to turn if you have the right facilities. In fact, i use the metaphor of the uh, Sydney Harbour Ferry. If you um, are boarding uh, a Manly Ferry at uh, Circular Quay or Manly, the process is very similar to what would be done with a domestic uh, A380. Not quite as, uh, uh, as, as I put it, uh, like a bus. But, you know, two <laughs> levels, um, uh, people people fly up the ramp and they, they go through one or two big doors and uh, Bob's your uncle and, the, and the, the, the jet pushes back. I think it is possible. Look, I've seen 747 uh, 400s in the 540, 550-seat yep. layout in Japan loaded in 16 minutes. It yep. really depends on the culture that you have for the passengers. Now, the Japanese are extraordinarily polite at train stations and at airports, and they cooperate, and everybody yeah. lines up at the appropriate place. The train glides to a halt, or the, the jet is towed to the right gate, and it is truly astonishing how, how efficiently uh, these things can be done if the public cooperate. Yeah, that's that's a good wild card because I've been in some some places also in Asia where it's <laughs> what is this thing called a queue? I have no idea of a line <laughs> swarm. You know, in India and Asia, I've seen them in action. Uh, but uh, in India, I agree. Oh yeah, I've, I haven't been to India, but I've heard the stories and seen the videos. Well, the last time I was in India, there was a complete riot uh, getting on a bus uh, from. Uh, <laughs> where we? I think somewhere, somewhere uh, we we're coming out of a Himalayan climbing expedition, actually, and uh, we were somewhere like um, actually one of the one of the holy cities, anyhow, Badrinath or somewhere like that, going to Delhi. And uh, the lights failed at the very moment that the 800 people had turned up to get onto a bus, which had a maximum Indian capacity of about 250 seats. <laughs> very, 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 it was terribly exciting, I must admit. Are you sure that was India, Ben, or Flinders Street Station in the afternoon peak? I think it looks rather similar. <laughs> oh, I don't, not Flinders Street. I think Flinders Street's an absolute uh, institution, and long may it uh, be the way it is. Yeah. Well, don't get me started on that subject, mate. We could be here for hours. But uh, just before we go to the break, uh, Ben, let's have a bit of a talk about about John Borghetti, uh, what can you, were you at all surprised that he didn't get the top job at Qantas? Because yes, uh, I, I, know I was. Uh, I thought John was eminently, uh, eminently qualified for that job, but I realised here was uh, that Alan Joyce had very strong uh, claim on the position as well. But John is a remarkable uh, uh, talent that uh, Virgin Blue has hired. He he had this extraordinary talent at Qantas of not being where the spear uh, landed. <laughs> Uh, I mean, John has the longest corporate memory of anybody in uh, aviation in Australia. Uh, his career in Qantas 
for anybody to have uh, survived so long and had such a beneficial effect on the airline and to have progressed so strongly as John did tells us a great deal about him. He, he's he's, an, he's a, a very tough, incredibly focused person, as they all are, as Alan Joyce is, as Jeff Dixon was. Uh, and Brett Godfrey was that while and they all came together um, in the same place at uh, Brett Godfrey's farewell, which is a truly amazing phenomenon yeah. to have witnessed that a few weeks ago. Um, uh, astonishing place, astonishing event. Um, but they all had in common incredible dedication and this amazing ability to, to you know work sixty hours in a twenty four hour day and uh, to, <laughs> to somehow or other still have a family life and uh, and they're very very driven people. So. While John has not given any clues whatsoever to what he's about to do at Virgin Blue, I do think that, that we have to take off as certainties a whole range of things we thought were certainties in the past. I'm not at all certain what he will do with the cabin configurations on Virgin Blue, and I don't have any strong views as, as to what they should be either. I just want, uh, I think I like most people, a regular, pleasant, reliable, well-priced service, and uh, that's, the, that's called the middle in the aviation market, and Virgin yep. Blue made the middle uh, a very strong place to be. Do you think that you'll um, be able to get all those different Virgin Group names together, like Pacific Blue, Polynesian Blue, V Australia, Virgin Blue? Do you think you'll be able to um, twist Singapore Airlines' arm enough that they'll uh, they'll allow that? I think he'll actually evade the uh, problem completely. The way I've been reading it is that the brand would be V Australia or V Pacific or V Blue. Mm. And I think the uh, the franchise of the sort of V terminology has grown to the point where it, it makes a compelling case as a unified brand. I think there will be a unified brand and I don't think it will need Singapore Airlines approval to do it, although Singapore Airlines might give it. I mean, Singapore Airlines itself will be looking at uh, where the future of aviation is going in this country, and uh, um, they're very uh, very smart and adaptable people, and they may make some quite surprising choices uh, in the next few years. Just for our listeners who don't know, what is the issue with Singapore Airlines and Virgin Blue changing their names? Uh, when uh, when Richard Branson sold 50% 49% of uh, Virgin Atlantic to Singapore Airlines, one of the con- one of the things Singapore Airlines acquired in perpetuity was the right of refusal to to apply the Virgin name to any other international carrier. That meant that uh, Pacific uh, the flights to New Zealand, for example, Pacific Blue, uh, couldn't be called you know Virgin Blue X or. Uh, or whatever, that meant that the Australia had to be found as a name to fly to America because he, the term Virgin could not be applied to the Virgin Blue international services to the United States. But as a corollary to that, and maybe Singapore Airlines had never thought of this, they did find a name which has, to my surprise, uh, lodged quite effectively in the, in the public mind. It is, it is not an obstacle to the airline. It is recognised as a brand. And I think that we see clear signs that the branding of the Virgin group of uh, brands in, in the Australia-Pacific region is going to occur. That V Australia could become it. I was actually looking at it the other way, that he, he was maybe going to, uh, that maybe Singapore would capitulate and Virgin would be allowed to have Virgin Pacific or something like that. But yeah, V Australia. I, well, uh, yeah. They, they, while they might, I don't see any sign. I think Singapore Airlines is much much more focused on other, um, how should I put it, pressing pressing uh, uh, issues <laughs> at the moment. I doubt very much whether there's there's anything significant going on between in, in communications between the two carriers. But I, I think there is a compelling argument that, uh, and it was outlined by Brett Godfrey, and I think this will survive. Brett 
said basically we're one brand in Australia against two brands, and Jetstar and Qantas. There's a big mm. disconnect between the Jetstar mm -hmm. and Qantas brands, as we all know. And the public, I think, the Virgin Blue was, the public would like a single brand where on every flight to wherever you're going in the Virgin network, you can have a premium, premium uh, product, you can have a well-priced uh, economy product, and you can, in fact, have a discount economy product yep. all in the same aircraft. Now, whether or not that comes, comes to be true, I mean, I have doubts about the, myself, about the pre very premium end. I, I would not be at all surprised if we simply see 737s where there's a, a very spacious and pleasant economy class, and then there's a, you know, a very good value packed in tight economy class, and uh, <laughs> probably one will be in front of the mid-wing exits and one might be at the back of them. Yeah, the back, there's been talk of, you know, front two or three rows of being better than economy, economy for the bulk of it, and the back four or five rows for the people who would otherwise fly on Tiger. Oh, look, it, that could be true too, I accept it. I think it would be more than four or five rows. I think we've got to face up to the reality that... Uh, maybe 60% to 70% of people within five years will be flying at the cheapest possible fare. Yeah. And that'll be whether they're on business accounts or whether they're, they're paying yep. with their own money. Yeah, the only problem there is um, can you squeeze your uh, six-foot-tall frame, which a lot of people are getting taller or, <laughs> or fatter, into a 30-pitch seat? Well, the answer, the answer, I can assure you, is no. Um, I have done it on more than a few occasions, and bone pain is very unpleasant. Uh, uh -huh. um, but then so is pain in the water. I actually think if you, if you thought uh, laterally about this, you could have a, a few uh, premium seats up the front, and then you could have a few premium seats subject to the, the uh, physical test down there in the middle where the, uh, where the exit rows are. Yes. Um, I really don't know. Of course, it's easier to do these things, isn't it, with a, with a decent uh, wide body, uh, which is the interesting question. Coming up after the break, the federal government looks for yet more ways to upset people, and this time they're taking on airline pilots, things are looking up for Tiger Airways, and a quick discussion on all things military. That's all next when Plane Crazy Down Under continues. I'm Matt Hall. Hi, I'm Matt Hall. I'm Matt Hall. No, I'm Matt Hall. No, I'm Matt Hall. Everyone wants to be Australia's champion Red Bull Air Race pilot, and now you can own a piece of Matt Hall memorabilia. Polos, T-shirts and caps for all shapes and sizes can be found at matthallracing.com. Just go to the online store and you too can be in the loop. Hello, I'm Matt Hall. <laughs> Flight experience 556, you're cleared for takeoff. Imagine sitting in a pilot's seat, flying past London Bridge or the Eiffel Tower, and landing at just about any airport. It's not just a flying experience, it's flight experience. From the roar of the engines to amazing visuals, flight experience puts you in control of the 737 flight simulator. It's so real, your senses actually believe you're flying. For more information, go online to flightexperience.com.au or call 1-800-737-800. Flight experience, the ultimate flying Experience. Want to advertise your business on the Plane Crazy Down Under podcast? Scripts and Voices has teamed up with the boys at Plane Crazy Down Under to bring you an exclusive offer. Scripts and Voices can make your ad to feature on this podcast at a specially reduced cost. That includes writing your ad, voiceover, backing music and production. To get your ad made in time for the next podcast, check out scriptsandvoices.com. Follow the link and send us an email. For advertising rates and packages, please see the Plane Crazy Down Under website. Pilot Stew here from the Pilot's Journey podcast. You're listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, where it's what's down under that counts. 
Now back to Grant and Steve, the masters of sound effects. And welcome back, folks. Now, we've been talking a bit about Singapore Airlines, so let's have a, a bit of a chat, gentlemen, about their uh, offshoot and my favourite airline, of course, Tiger Airways. <laughs> I think Tiger have basically um, crossed the hump in Australia. I think that uh, any uh, any thought that Tiger is a short-term presence in the market has gone. They now have the money. They now have a slightly better network than they had before. They do not have a great reputation, but they're making money or indeed breaking even as they reported in their annual results. Yeah, and they keep calling themselves Australia's favourite airline, so one day someone might believe them. <laughs> yes, that's a very bad term. I, I, I can't understand why they say that. But, uh, you know, look, they are the naked Ryanair model in mm-hmm. Australia. And... Um, the attraction of $49, $59 fares between, say, Canberra and Melbourne is a powerful one. Mm-hmm. And if they can actually make money, and they can, on that fair level, and if they, if they get away with, uh, with selling on average $10 to $15 in ancillary fees, mm-hmm. they are going to be around for as long as they want to be. They're, they're obviously finding their way, uh, they've finally obviously found their place in the market, and as you say, they've, they've gotten past the Compass Mark 1 and Compass Mark 2 syndrome. So uh, if that was uh, mm. going to kick in, they'd have been long gone by now. They're saying here in a recent report that their profit's up 29%. Uh, we need to be careful about how to do this, though. Remember that, like a lot of the low-cost models in their early years, this is all based on expansion. It's based on collecting fares faster than the costs arise. So they're selling fares in advance on a carrier which has, let's say, uh, 15 jets available in a year's time, and they're using those fares that they've collected to pay the daily running costs of an airline which at the moment only has nine jets in service. Mm. So it's a process of of holding a lot of money for fares in advance of carriage, and that is made clear in their accounts too. So they're not they're not trying to do anything dodgy uh, out of out of out of view. But that's how the early expansionary phases of a low cost carrier are supposed to work. And Virgin Blue and Qantas and Jetstar will of course be doing everything they can to come up with strategies that will make it not work. So. We will see some pretty pretty uh, savage competition, I think, uh, domestically, basically, as far into the future as we dare look. Well, the smartest thing they've done is uh, go right up against Jetstar on the Melbourne-Sydney market, flying in and out of Tullamarine, and they've actually forced Jetstar's hand and forced them to start flying out of Tullamarine to Sydney themselves instead of Avalon. They did that too, and not only that, but they forced Jetstar, they forced Jetstar to confront Qantas City Flyer because yeah. the, the wild card here is a lot of businesses are looking to save money on uh, T&E, travel and uh, entertainment. Uh, airfares are a very easy target. Uh, they don't care what the uh, executives think about this. Uh, the, the days of the Royal Barge are well and truly over. <laughs> and if there is a Jetstar plane going within 10 or 15 minutes uh, of a Qantas City Flyer, you have to explain to the dragon that is running the uh, travel management policy of your company why you dared fly City Flyer at four times the fare of, let's say, Jetstar, when, yep. when they were both available within the, within the designated period of time. Yeah, and it's quite clear that uh, we really are going to be talking about Qantas, a member of the Jetstar group, in another five years. I think think, uh, Grant's made a pretty good prediction there. I think that's very much uh, going to be the case. You will see Qantas on a few of the uh, premium runs, but uh, everyone thought that uh, they'd they'd never introduced Jetstar on Sydney, Melbourne. Uh -uh, No way, that's that's sacrosanct. That's the big Mm. big flight. Well, thanks to the, as we were saying about Boeing and Airbus, someone came up and took them by surprise. Tiger decided to join the route. Blam! 
Yep. One of the other factors too that's uh, that's helped not, not only Tiger Airways but all the airlines, of course, is that the cost of fuel has dropped over the last, let's say, 18 months. And although it's gone up a little bit this year, um, just looking as we record this, it's actually just dropped down again below $70 a barrel. So that's obviously been a big factor. Tony Davis, their CEO, did point to that being a factor in them increasing their, their profits at Tiger Airways. I think Tony was, was right on that, that occasion. And also, I don't see that higher fuel is necessarily going to work against uh, low-cost carriers either because in the higher fuel environment, all sorts of screws are being tightened in, in a national economy. And uh, the, the impetus to trade down to the cheapest possible fare will be just as strong under high fuel as low fuel. So I think it's a zero-sum game. I think wherever fuel goes, uh, up to the point where basically uh, we lock down the cities and people stop flying altogether, it affects everybody roughly the same. Certain, certainly with fuel anywhere between uh, uh, the $68-odd US benchmark it was uh, this morning up to around about the 140 that had everybody uh, weeping at the height of the, um, the, the fuel crisis. Don't, don't forget one very important thing, though, with fuel. Surcharges. Yeah. All the airlines are doing it. Oh, mm. fuel goes up, we increase our fuel charge surcharge. And everyone, it's, it's that whole, um, this isn't part of the ticket price, this is a fuel surcharge. It's not us putting our prices up. Oh, no, fuel's gone up, so we're putting the surcharge up. So, so they've decoupled fuel from the price of a ticket. So if people complain about, oh, man, it cost me twice as much to go between Melbourne and Sydney as it did a few months or half a year ago, it's quite clear that it's the fuel surcharge that's gone up. Oh, dude, the perfect excuse. Yeah, and you know, and the usual kind of thing, the, the fuel surcharge doesn't always go up in perfect lockstep with the fuel price, no, and sometimes it stays up even after the fuel has come down a bit because, you know, the fuel could go back up again real soon now. Yes, it did. I, I, uh, it was a rich source of stories for me. I kept, uh, I kept <laughs> writing rude things about the fact that the uh, fuel had gone down by about 30 or 40% and the surcharges hadn't. It uh, wasn't very popular for doing <laughs> that, I'm afraid. Yeah. Did you, do you actually, just on a side note, do you ever get the situation where you're checking in and they go, oh, it's you? No. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to say I don't. Um, uh, I, I, I like to travel as anonymously as I can. And look, you know, some, yeah, some people do uh, ask me a few questions, but I, I get pretty good feedback from, uh, from, uh, from cabin crew, to be perfectly honest. Um, I've yet to be uh, refused, uh, <laughs> refused entry because I'm a, I'm a person of disrepute. I must, work hard, I, must, I must work harder on that. Yeah, you're slipping. Come on. This, this is journalism. We've got to work on that. <laughs> Well, uh, speaking of charges here, there's a, a recent article by Steve Creddy in The Australian where he's talking about uh, Tiger Airways refusing to rule out a carry-on baggage charge. Uh, I'm surprised they haven't already uh, introduced that charge. They've got charges for everything else. I agree. It, it was a surprise. And in fact, I noticed a little bit of subtlety has crept into the uh, Virgin Blue booking engine. If you go and have a look at it, they now emphasise the no baggage charge more clearly on their booking engine so that if you're buying they've got five fares as a rule available uh the top three don't carry and are clearly delineated as not carrying any excess baggage charge uh, not yep. well but they're not carrying any uh, any check baggage charge so yep. if you bring more than say 20 kilos i think it is then you will get an excess baggage charge i think that's quite interesting they've done that yeah um, well, we we just took advantage of that um my family, we're traveling up, up north, so uh, my partner and I, we're taking the suitcases and uh, the son has no suitcase, does he? He, he just cohabits with mine. And yeah. uh, voila, lower, lower fare. 
Yeah. No, it's the way to do it. Um, I, I think I think that's a very important thing. It's one of the advantages of Qantas too. Um, on, on occasions, I'm using Qantas out of Canberra simply because the difference between the Virgin Blue fare and the Qantas fare was the twenty odd dollars it was going to cost me uh, if I didn't uh, buy it. You know, when when I booked the booked the actual fare, and apart from that, Qantas has a slightly higher frequency to Melbourne than uh, than the Virgin Blue at this stage. Although I'm glad to say the the E-Jets are starting to make a big big inroads into the into the timetable. You'd think it'd be, like, I recently flew on Southwest Airlines over in the US, and they make a huge point of, of telling everybody that we don't charge for, you know, baggage. There's no bag fees ever, I think, is, is something similar to what their uh, their slogan is. You'd think that some of the airlines here might sort of come up with a similar sort of marketing thing. So, hey, I, I wish us. they would. I wish they would. You know, JetBlue and Southwest, uh, it's complete role reversal. They have fewer additional charges than the legacy yeah. carriers, and uh, and they give away free snacks, uh, whereas you pay for just about everything uh, that you eat or drink uh, on American or, or United these days. And it's it's truly fascinating. They are a higher quality experience, in my view, than the so-called uh, full service carriers in economy. Yes. Well, yeah. I don't think there is in the U.S. At least, I don't. I mean, American Airlines used to be fantastic back in the 80s and early 90s when I would uh, fly around on them a little bit. But uh, the last time I flew on them back in 07, well, it was just it was no different to flying on Virgin Blue. You had to pay for everything. Yeah. Uh, well, I had a terrible experience with American. I, I flew a number of sectors with American Airlines in, in the last few years, and uh, you were sort of handed uh, these sort of what they call them bistro bags or something, yeah. <laughs> um, with you know the odd bit of. Uh, vegetable and then the roll and uh, nothing to spread the butter with and uh, I was actually pursued down the aisle by uh, by a flight attendant who was concerned that I hadn't picked up my bistro bag. Um, it was sort of like it's compulsory to enjoy this, you will enjoy it. I, <laughs> I, I, I must admit I go out of my way to avoid American Airlines per se. Uh, I haven't had the, the privilege of flying on the uh, Virgin America experience but I do Greatly respect Southwest and uh, JetBlue, and uh, my favourite is Horizon. Uh, Horizon's a little like, not little, it's a big Q400 operator based around uh, Seattle, associate of Alaskan Airlines, and uh, you get on board the Horizon plane, guys, and the first thing they do on the 30-minute flight from Wenatchee to Seattle is to uh, pop the beer of the day. And that is, they've got all these boutique breweries, and uh, we're featuring today the following boutique brewery. And along comes the uh, the beers, and I tell you what, that that view of Mount Rainier, because you're, you're flying, you know, about two thirds of the way up the side of Mount Rainier, uh, you come into Seattle with a cold beer in your hand, is just wonderful. <laughs> and no wonder, no wonder more Australians like Horizon beer. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and, the, and the girls are very sweet too. Uh, there, there is, you know, there is that old-fashioned American hospitality uh, still exists, yeah. and um, it's wonderful when you come across it. I, mean, I, even, I even think with all these extra fees and things that these airlines are putting on for, for for the sort of things that you would assume you were paying for in the cost of your fare to start with, the base fare at least, and with all the extra scrutiny there is on all sorts of companies, uh, the banks would be a good good example of that these days, where people are always jumping up and down to the ACCC in consumer affairs. It's a wonder that the government doesn't step in and, and say, listen. I mean, they've done that in Victoria now with cars now. You know, the price that they quote you is the drive-away price. It has to be. The price, the price the consumer pays for the, for the normal product, which should be all of the fuel surcharges, the cost of transport, uh, but not necessarily the, uh, the checked luggage uh, component, that should all be quoted. And in fact, I think the ACCC rules are still interpreted that way yeah. as a big final price, uh, which is the, the most likely uh, reference price. 
it's a scandalous uh, in some in some jurisdictions, including parts of Europe, where this is not the case, and the fees and charges can actually uh, increase the fare by 50, 50 or even sixty percent. That's that's certainly the case with Tiger. I mean, you, you look at those base fares, but there are so many extra fees that they put on for everything. It it adds a significant cost to the fare. By the time you finish adding everything on you want there, you can you can be paying another you know fifty percent over the base fare. Easy. Oh, oh you wanted nice a padded way. seat. Oh, you wanted a seat that was comfy. Oh, <laughs> oh you wanted a seat. Oh, well, you know, don't go there. That's the new one from Ryanair and the Chinese airline that want those standing room seats. <laughs> uh, the good news, guys, is that uh, they'd have to recertify the airliner to do that. And I, I don't think uh, Boeing or, um, or anybody is going to, going, to, going, to, uh, going to allow them to get away with that. But it was a pretty horrifying, uh, horrifying thought at the time. Yeah. But, I mean, these are the days where you can buy, you can buy a standing room seat uh, from uh, London to Paris on Eurostar. So um, it is possible, I suppose. Yeah, but that Eurostar hasn't got has doesn't have the same uh, crash qualifications and uh, g-force resistance required for a uh, splatter on the ground type effect. Mm. And it does have a really nice little bar that you can wander up to and um, have a drink anyhow, even if you're a standing passenger. See, that's not standing room. That's leaning room. <laughs> leaning room. <laughs> Propping up the bar room. <laughs> I don't think yep. the uh, I don't think the airlines in this country are under any threat from high speed rail. It's it just would never work in this country, in my opinion. It's really sad, but I agree with you. Um, I love high-speed rail, but uh, it's inappropriate in Australia in, in the, the current uh, you know, spread of population and where the population centres are. I'm very much in favour of us uh, improving our rail. We can, we can achieve a great deal uh, with a comparatively small amount of money for faster rail, for better rail, and we desperately need to improve our city rail services. Uh, let's start at the beginning and uh, get those things right and... Uh, I think people people will then, you know, in 50 years' time, there'll be different technologies, there'll be different pressures on the Australian economy and all sorts of things may have changed. But in, for the time being, Australia is definitely a place where the movable asset, the airline, is the way to go. You don't have to build a permanent way, you don't have to build the stations, and if things go wrong, you can always redeploy the aircraft or sell them. But there is one thing that may cause uh, some problems for the airlines, and that's our government. Uh, it is a worry. Um, I, we better not get into a, a, a um, contest here to see which, whether the Victorian or New South Wales government is worse. I, I would claim the New South Wales government is unspeakably bad. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I just just look at what's going on at the moment. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, I was looking more at the federal level and uh, considering our illustrious transport minister um, Anthony Albanese, and he's trying once again to push through a law that would ban pilots that aren't the official pilot, captain and co-pilot from the uh, flight deck. Unless, unless there is check captain or a safety, there's a safety audit going on. It was really bizarre, and you know, it's sort of like a macho pushing contest. Uh, I don't think Anthony is prepared to consider anything but getting his way. Uh, I don't think the pilots are going to give an inch. The absurd proposition that the minister has made is that somehow a pilot who was perfectly safe to fly an airliner on one leg is suddenly a safety threat by being in the cockpit on another leg is, is too silly to, to even contemplate. Uh, there, and then there is a the question of criminality. The airlines in law, in international law, are responsible for everything that the pilot and the airline employees do. This is a transfer of criminal culpability from airline managements to pilots. It's a very, very bad precedent. Yeah. Uh, and I think, that personally, my, my own view is, is to side with the pilots and say the minister is completely wrong. Yeah, definitely agreed on that one. I mean, you've, he's, he's citing safety, and yet having an extra pair of eyes and ears on board the fl flight deck monitoring from the jump seat has got to improve safety. I it, mean, does in, it does in almost all cases. And, and look, uh, if the minister is concerned about safety and, the, and uh, security, 
and the Australian airline system he will do something very urgently about the ridiculous situation at Sydney Airport and Melbourne Airport where the people who are in the shops, the caterers, the cleaners, the baggage handlers are given cursory inspections. Uh-huh. They're not checked for weapons. I mean, this, this is the barn door banging wide open. If the minister yep. is serious about security issues, he needs to get over his pilot jump seat fetish and do something about what's happening, between, what's happening in airside access. It is yep. a scandal. It's really deficient, and it's done for commercial, base commercial reasons. The airlines and the airports really don't want to have to contemplate the cost and inconvenience of proper security measures across the airport. And that's that's the whole thing of the security theatre. We're being patted down, body scanned, shown all our nudie bits and all this kind of stuff, and yet the guys out there on the ramp, some of them have got criminal records, you know, some of the uh, there's stories of catering companies using aircraft to transport drugs. There's all sorts of stuff goes on out there, and yes. nothing's being done. Yes, I know, I know, and uh, and it's it's hard it's hard to make a case. I mean, I I try from time to time. Uh, there's not enough people asking those questions in the media, and it, it disappoints me. Yeah, well, that's no, the exactly. thing, isn't it? I mean, it's it's not really about security at all. And Grant and I've and plenty of other uh, journalists and podcasters have called it security theatre, and that's exactly what it, it is. It is. It is. Yeah. It's it's a sham thing, and. Uh, uh, it's very deficient, and look, uh, to a degree, uh, well, I can take the contrary view and argue that we, we really don't need a lot of these security measures at all, but we do need consistency. I am terrified by the possibilities of terrorist attack, obviously, in our society, in other locations, wherever people congregate. I'm, I, I'm twitchy. I mean, I did spend a little bit of time as a reporter at the start of the Irish Troubles uh, way back in the uh, late 60s yeah. and early 70s. I, I'm still twitchy about uh, fast food outlets. I'm twitchy about pubs. I love pubs. I don't like driving through major tunnel, road tunnels at peak hour. I, I'm as nervous as all hell about the dangers we face in our society, but we have to get over it and toughen up because yeah. at the end of the day, there's nothing we can do about it. Life has to go on, and if, if we get... We, 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 should, we need to think about our parents. Our parents during World War II, wherever they were, were in a world where there was a 9-11-sized atrocity every night in London for three months in a row where the, really the most appalling things happened, and yet life went on. And yep. uh, I, th- I think we just have to basically toughen up and say that you can be unlucky. You've got more chance of dying from cigarette-induced cancer or, you know, when you step out in front of the bus. It's like uh, there's bigger risks. More people die every year of normal flu, of car accidents. What are we doing about that? Exactly. Exactly. No, No, I couldn't agree more. I mean, uh, uh, you know, I'm destined to die by not not checking my blind spot when I'm changing lanes. That's the most likely, uh, the most likely way a person person can lose yep. their life. I think, outside of you know a heart attack or, or those yep. sort of things. So yes, the safety side of side of air transport is grossly misunderstood and misrepresented, and it is a uh, sham. There's no yep. doubt about it. Well, the well, other thing like... too is with this situation. I mean, if you've got a uh, if you've got a pilot deadheading from one spot to the next, he's now going to have to sit in a revenue seat. Which, is, which represents a loss to the company, whereas he could have been sitting up in the cockpit. There are all sorts of safety reasons why that would be a good idea if something did go wrong. Mm. Um, so really, I mean, if this is security theatre, how's this going to look to the travelling public? They're not going to know that there's not an extra pilot in the uh, uh, on the flight deck now, so what's the point? <laughs> what about taking it the step further, which is where, oh, the pilot not flying shouldn't be on there because it just needs one pilot, one computer. Oh, oh what about... No, no, no. <laughs> That's terrifying, I mean... I'm sure there's airline managers out there somewhere in the world that think, geez, we could save a lot of money if we only had uh, only had one pilot. 
Uh, fortunately, that, that that's never yep. caught on. Not even not even in a, a Cessna caravan. Thank goodness. <laughs> we we become used to in Paris, uh, um, where I go a little bit. Uh, I become used to things like the Meteor uh, Metro line, which is completely driverless and attendant-free. It's a sealed um, uh, modern uh, uh, Metro line that uh, runs automatically. It's not run into anything yet, and it it's better than the rest of the Metro. It's actually got air conditioning. You don't Oof. sort of you know bake to death in summer. Well, I don't know. The, all the cabs of the trains I drive have all got air conditioning. I don't know what your problem is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the rest of us plebs in the back. <laughs> but uh, they, they did try the same thing with the uh, monorail in Sydney, but they've still got drivers. They were supposed to be drivers. Yes, they do. Free. They do. <laughs> in fact, they've, they've even had a rear-end uh, collision uh, a few months ago, would you believe? No. On a they monorail? Yes. It, it was a very slow collision, but it did injure a few people. Oh, my uh, God. It happened, happened to a train coming out of a, uh, a monorail set coming out of the side. Um, <laughs> so... Great. Truly appalling. I mean, you know, it's, it's a bit like watching a a, a crash between two uh, two cyclists. You know, one cycling up the back of another. Um, <laughs> but um, you know, when they were staring at the girl or whatever. But no, look, uh, I think uh, I think people uh, need to continually put pressure on uh, on the authorities as to the reasons why inconveniences exist. And sometimes there will be a good reason, and sometimes it'll be inconsistent. Yep. Uh, and those inconsistencies need need to be brought out. Yeah, well, it's, it's it's security and safety are now two very great shields for um, people to hide behind as they either hide from their inability to deal or want to hide their own secret agendas. I mean, the classic and a similar one on that in the aviation world is one of my favorite bugbears at the moment is uh, Sydney airports. Macquarie airports have turned around and they're shutting down airside tarmac tours. Ooh, safety and security. But they're some of the best drivers on the uh, tarmac and one of the safest operations. They were going before 9-11. They've been going after it with no problems. Everyone's vetted. You can't take bulky items on board. What the heck? It's... It was totally absurd, wasn't it? I feel very disappointed uh, that uh, that tour has been closed down. In fact, in a few weeks' time, uh, I think at the end of June from memory, they did a brilliant job and uh, even the airport, to a degree, has grudgingly acknowledged that. But uh, they said the contract came up for renewal and uh, there may have been an insurance company in the background here, but they said the risk, uh, they, can't, uh, they can't accept the uh, risk anymore. I, look, basically, I just think it's, it's tragic. Uh, there were yeah. two great things to do in Sydney uh, for visitors. One was the Harbour Bridge Walk. Talk about security risk. Can you imagine all yeah. these people clambering all over the Harbour Bridge? Yeah. Um, and the other was uh, Sydney Airport. Uh, yep. The bus tours, the both, that, both brilliant parts, brilliant ways of, of understanding our city. Yeah, and th- those tarmac tours were the one thing these days that makes Macquarie Airport look good. Macquarie Airports are a complete bunch of losers mm. at the moment. Mm. They're just being, they're making, they're, they're upping rates, they're charging for, for services they're taking away. Everyone hates them. They, yes, they, they do. They, they, Macquarie Airports is the poster child for how to mismanage and destroy the good, goodwill of an airport. Yeah, and I'm afraid so. Mm. This one tour thing that actually showed the public how cool an airport was, how important it was, and maybe even inspired a few people to go and become, you know, kids become pilots or airline managers or even airport mm. managers. They're kind of shutting it down. It's it's totally short-sighted, and, and uh, I think this links right the way back to that whole marketing take and, and accounting taking over against engineering. You've got yes. the bean counters killing things because they can't think outside their scope. Qantas is, is just dying and disappearing in some ways because of the bean counters. You know, people who focus solely on the money quite often have none. Have you noticed that? Whereas, <laughs> look at what's happening with, with Air New Zealand. Yes, people, there are people who don't like what Air New Zealand's doing, but hey, how many awards are they winning? And, and you know, Fife's approach is focus on your staff. If your staff are happy, they do a great job, which keeps the customers happy in coming back, which means that the shareholders are happy. 
Yeah, I think actually uh, uh, Rob Fife's um, approach and that of uh, Brett Godfrey and certainly I, I suspect uh, John Borghetti uh, will be very fruitful if their their, uh, their alliance uh, is uh, is approved. Uh, it's, a, it's a very interesting proposal. They have the transatlantic uh, a trans-Tasman alliance. Uh, yes. They'll still be bitter enemies on many many routes, but across the Tasman they will jointly sell each other's services. I'm waiting to see how they align their product because. They have said they will align their product to a degree. And you might have remembered that Air New Zealand's come out with this innovative uh, uh, new product where, where basically you can buy a basic seat, you can buy the yep. seat for the meal, you can buy the, the seat for the kids, which presumably is a cone of silence, um, <laughs> and, you can, and you can buy the seat with the complete works, which presumably is a body-painted flight attendant. Oh, uh, uh, You know, who will... Uh, well, whatever. Anyhow, I'm uh, being getting carried away here. Now, <laughs> the, the, the thing that... The question, though, I have is how do you differentiate effectively between these people? If I'm flying on an airline, I like to choose a seat sometimes up the back for a particular reason, particularly if I'm coming in across on a good day across the Southern Alps. I love to be able to, you know, coming in across Hokitika towards Christchurch from Sydney, wonderful view of Mount Cook and even even down to Mount Aspiring sometimes. I don't want to be told, like, oh, this is available in the front six rows of the jet if I actually want to sit uh, somewhere else. Um, And I don't want to go back to the days that uh, you guys probably weren't born when it happened, but TAA back in the early 80s uh, had an experiment with no-frills fares, which meant that you could buy a ticket, which was, I think, $20 cheaper or whatever, and that didn't include the meal. And let's face it, the meal was bloody toxic uh, in those days. And if you you were one of the no-frills cheapskates, they'd stick a little flag in the back of the headrest to flag the position of the cheapskates, who all would come on to their credit, with wonderful gourmet food, which they then, you know, because you're allowed to bring your own snacks on, and people would yeah. produce the most delicious food, and these poor guys paying the full service fare would be looking across the aisle, to, you know, from their regulation <laughs> bread bread roll with, uh, you know, the thawed mince pie, and, uh, <laughs> something that the uh, the student was devouring on the other side of the aisle, and of course the, the whole experiment was a complete fiasco and was closed down after a after a few weeks. But how are they going to administer it? I and mean, we don't know. I mean, I, I didn't get a chance at the spectacular Brett Godfrey farewell party to actually ask Rob Fife how he was going to do it. But uh, it will be an interesting <laughs> challenge to, uh, you know, work out where everybody is sitting in the plane. I think it's going to have to be zoned. Okay. Well, um, let's leave that one there, guys. And uh, probably just before we wrap up with the news here, we'd better have a bit of a quick chat about military matters. Uh, ben, the F-35 project, how's that looking at a political level? We've, we've seen the arrival of the, uh, the stopgap aircraft the F-18F, I think the first five of those are here now. Grant and I are of the opinion that we'll probably never see the F-35 in this country. What's your uh, take on that? I think there's a, I think there's a strong strong chance that uh, you're right. The, the trouble with the F-35 is it was a wonderful project in the early 90s. It really made a lot of sense. Uh, and since then, it's been bogged down by a whole series of uh, man- managerial and technical calamities. The point, of, the way I approach the whole issue of the, uh, of the JSF is that our defence material organisation has approached it as the seller's agent rather than the critical buyer. And that's where I think we've made mistakes in this country. I think we've made mistakes in a number of military acquisitions because the acquisition is designated at the outset and then it's vigorously supported within government when, in fact, critical and continued close analysis of the the program is what is required, not uh, not not a, the maintenance of a, a friendly relationship with the seller. It's wrong to be friends with the seller of anything, in my opinion. 
On the actual technology of the JSF, it's very disappointing because we look like, and the argument has been made very persuasively in my view, that this aircraft will cost the Western world its air superiority, that, it, that there needs to be a very strong rethink about the, about the aircraft and about the alternatives, whether they're upgraded versions of the F-16, whether the F-22 is, can be uh, re revived, uh, which some people say is a complete lost cause and others say, no, there is still a chance. But I'm concerned with the public accountability side of it. And some of the Americans, to the credit, in Australia, while we're still singing uh, from the hymn book that everything is wonderful and that we've had two very adverse audits into the JSF conducted in the United States by the General Office of Accounting and by the Test and Evaluation Auditor, and uh, we're not paying attention. Uh, we have a project which is undefined. We have committed to $3.2 billion for the first 14 low-rate production JSFs or F-35s, for which there is no specifications. There is no nexus between these aircraft and what the final JSF will be. There's no convincing nexus, put it that way. And I just feel that we're not being told the truth. Bill Sweetman, one of the, the foremost commentators on the JSF, has been silenced, according to Aviation Week, temporarily, but has been pulled off the round. And I, I, I have a very uneasy feeling that Australia's defence needs are not being properly addressed. I'm concerned about the defence of the country. At the end of the day, we need the very best technology that we can afford uh, and we need to ask ourselves intelligent, you know, ask ourselves the right questions about what we need and how we should use it. Well, I think, you know, we've got a lot of uh, Russian aircraft surrounding us in, in neighbouring countries and I think to underestimate, you know, there's there's always been a lot of propaganda around about the capabilities of these aircraft, but we, I feel we underestimate the capabilities of uh, Russian block aircraft at our peril. I think we do. I think we do, and I think uh, there's a lot of evidence uh, that supports that view. Uh, and they are flying the uh, PAC uh, or the T-50 at the moment, yep. uh, which is their answer. It's not a direct answer to the JSF, but it certainly changes the uh, the equations that uh, Lockheed Martin, for example, likes to point to. Um, I think we have an air superiority gap of some significance emerging, and I don't have a magic answer for that, but somehow or other something must be done and we can't keep pretending that this is not happening. I mean, we're going to end up being the last choir boy singing in the empty chapel, mm -hmm. the way things are going. Well, um, the Netherlands but, pulled out. Well, the Netherlands have passed, uh, passed resolutions which certainly put a dampener on the project. They, they don't necessarily mean the cancellation of Netherlands' involvement at all, but they do put a lot of heat on the project. And, of course, there is an election coming up in the Netherlands. It's a caretaker government at the moment. I believe there's a general election early in June. And uh, so let's see what happens after that election. But it was significant that the three parties in the parliament were able to get three somewhat different but, but negative resolutions passed. It seems to me too, like, of course, we're in an election year here as well, so there's that sort of factor too. I don't think our government is game enough right now to uh, cancel that order because even if it made sense to cancel the order or at least look at it a bit more carefully, that's not going to play well for them in the uh, the general media. So uh, perhaps um, no decision will be made on that until, uh, you know, the result of the election is known at the end of the year. I think we see the outlines of very strong lobbying in Canberra now, in fact, even this week, for Australia to commit to more Super Hornets as an interim, that's our interim solution, of course, to the delays to the JSF and the some, some would argue premature retirement of the F-111s. I have a feeling that Australia is going to be urged more along the merits of that path and, and it has limited merit 
uh, to be perfectly honest. We are stuck in a bit of a technological vacuum here as to exactly what we'll do with our military uh, military air superiority strategy. Um, certainly some, some people argue that uh, it's time for the world to basically put uh, immense pressure on DC to... Uh, release the F-22, mm-hmm. uh, the Raptor, into uh, wider availability, which, ironically enough, is made by the same lead contractor as, uh, as behind the JSF. And that people also point out that most of the customers for the JSF do not see it as the universal solution to every possible air superiority need. And yeah. this may well be part of, the, part of the problem in Australia, that we are trying to make this project do everything and we know that that doesn't work with helicopters we basically probably need three or four or even five different types of helicopters in australia and breaking through the current military establishment and having having that debate take place is a particular challenge i wouldn't put it however past the the minister i think john Faulkner is a very smart and astute person but whether or not he can marshal the political muscle in cabinet to actually start to make changes is the big question and as you say it is an election year and you know the government wants any government and opposition is looking to discuss political issues in terms of slogans they're looking at something that can be powerfully conveyed in one sentence or a 20 second tv grab defense is very very complicated uh so it's very unsexy in a way to uh, to to try and make it a political issue and that's why we don't get a real depth of discussion uh, about these sorts of issues in the run-up to an election. Well, the other thing that uh, that often goes unspoken about with the, uh, you know, if we were to get the full complement of, of uh, the F-35 aircraft, it's actually going to lead to the Royal Australian Air Force shrinking in fleet size because they're yep. doing away with two complete fleets of, firstly, the F-111s <laughs> and the, the F-18s of, uh, of all variants and replacing them all with the uh, with the F-35. So they really put in their eggs in one basket and hoping for the best. Well, we did that with the Collins-class submarine and I'm afraid the results are <laughs> really quite terrible. Uh, yes. We have one functioning Collins class submarine at the moment, which is, is truly awesomely bad. The only comfort I can take from this situation is that uh, some countries to our north actually can't afford to buy huge numbers of um, of Sukhoi 35s and other competent uh, aircraft. They do have some, but they don't have a large number of them. But a peacetime situation where we see no imminent threat is probably the best time for us to be addressing these difficult questions, not in the heat of a serious regional crisis. It's too late by then. You're way Absolutely. too late. We have a lot to worry about in this country. It doesn't require a panic. That requires a lot of very diligent and critical analysis. And it's the lack of critical analysis which most concerns me about the JSF project, as it, as it, as it does about the uh, MRH uh, order too. That's another... Uh, another project which, quite frankly, has disappointed at the moment. In fact, they're all grounded at the moment because yes. of a, a very serious uh, incident a month ago which Defence tried, tried to keep quiet. I think Ian, Mc, uh, Ian McFedrin has been writing some very good stories about this, by the way, the, the Defence uh, reporter for a newspaper whose uh, who's, uh, work should be supported because <clears throat> he's basically doing it in a vacuum now. He has no real competition in the established media. Yeah, we don't often uh, we often uh, quote Steve Crady, but we don't come across Ian McFedrin's work too often. Perhaps we, we uh, should uh, chase some of his stuff a bit more vigorously. I think it's worth doing, and to, to, uh, but, but in defence of uh, Steve Crady, um, he he does look uh, very closely at the uh, civil side, and uh, he's a very hard-working reporter. I, uh, and in fact, I go out of my way to 
to isolate myself from most military reporting except the public administration side because I feel that there are far better qualified people out there to write about this. Well, folks, that's been a really fascinating hour we've spent here with Ben. Uh, we really thank you for joining us uh, once again on the show. We're glad to uh, find that we didn't scare you off from the last time uh, you came on with us, mate. No, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much. And Ben, just before you uh, you head off into the 11-degree heat up there in Canberra, tell the listeners uh, where they can find you online. Uh, you'll find me at uh, Plain Talking. That's two words, P-L-A-N-E, Talking, and uh, or alternatively on the Crikey website, and uh, Google is your friend. Excellent, mate. Well, we, we certainly hope that we can have a chat with you again sometime in the uh, very near future. Look forward to it. Excellent, Thanks, mate. Ben. Really appreciate it, mate. Hi, I'm Will. And I'm David. And we're two of the voices in your head. Come join us in the virtual hangar for a little good old-fashioned hangar flying. Well, it's not really old-fashioned. Well, what do you mean? Well, it's a Skype-based virtual hangar that only exists on the internet. But we got beer. <laughs> that is true. And we never know who we might run into. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. And I really did get stick time in that F-16. Okay, okay, you win. Uh, come join us for some good old-fashioned hangar flying. Look for the Pilot's Flight Podlog in iTunes. Or visit us at pilotsflightpodlog.com. Is your company in the aviation industry? Advertising your business on our podcasts is an easy and inexpensive way of reaching the growing online aviation community. Whether a conversational infomercial or radio-style ad, we can produce advertisements tailored to your target market and budget. We can also use your own pre-produced commercial. With an audience of pilots, professionals and enthusiasts across the Asia-Pacific region and growing around the world through increasing cross-promotion with other online media, this is a great alternative to traditional advertising. For further information, simply go to our website, www.playingcrazydownunder.com and click on the Advertising With Us link. If you can't get enough of AirplaneGeeks.com, try Playing Crazy Down Under. And then come back and listen to airplanegeeks.com again. Well, folks, have you ever been in the vicinity of an airport and seen some of those rather swank-looking business jets parked along the service ramps there and thought to yourself, like I have, boy, I wouldn't mind a ride in one of those? Well, there's a new business that started up that's based in Newcastle up in New South Wales that may be able to turn that dream into a reality. Joining us on the line from Newcastle is James Baldwin and Glenn Somerville from Empty Jets. G'day, guys. Hi there, how you going? G'day. Thanks for joining us. Uh, empty jets, an interesting concept. Are you the first people in Australia to be doing that, or is it something that's been done before? Um, I think we're the first in Australia. I know individual companies have had things on their websites, but I think this is the first site to actually collaborate all the operators within Australia, so everyone can access it, and we're going to have one location for all the empty flights. It's been done um, successfully in the States, um, but there are a lot more aircraft in the States, but we do think there's a market in Australia for um, empty leg transfers. Yeah, there, there has been some comments before in the, um, in the aviation world that uh, fractional jet ownership and and so on that Australia doesn't quite have the uh, the population and the and the number of aircraft but it, you guys seem to be going out to show that that's not the case yes well with empty jets we're not only focusing on business jets uh, as is the focus in the US and the UK but we'd like to incorporate uh, all charter aircraft in the system this includes light twin engine aircraft helicopters of course your private jets and even your large uh, up to 100 seat airliners 
Okay, oh. so the basic concept then is that you're selling surplus space uh, where these aircraft would be flying somewhere with no passengers. You're selling that surplus space to uh, people who sign up for your service. Yes, that's correct. There are hundreds of aircraft each day in Australia that are positioned uh, empty. They might have done a, a charter one way and the return leg is free as the aircraft is returning to its base. So we can actually um, sell those particular legs as a charter flight where our, our customers purchase that entire aircraft for that, that sector. Okay, so if I wanted to become a customer of Empty Jets, uh, do you want to step me through the process of becoming a customer and then using the system? Yeah, basically all you need to do is just go onto emptyjets.com.au. The sign-up fee is $29.95. That's for 12 months. Um, that gives you access to all the current flights. Uh, also, email alerts. So if you, um, say, live in Sydney and set a departure alert for Sydney, um, any flight that's enter entered from Sydney will um, send you an email automatically to let you know where it's going and what sort of aircraft. Um, and you can also set aircraft alerts too if you want to fly in a specific type of aircraft. And um, interestingly too, you said there's a lot of helicopters that you, or well, a lot of helicopters, but you're looking to move into that. What sort of demand is there for the rotary wing side of things? I think there's actually as much demand as there is with the, the larger jet aircraft. There's always helicopters doing small transfers to and from. They might be dropping passengers out, out at a winery for the day and returning empty. Uh, helicopters do a lot of uh, more volume of, of shorter flights and there's still many opportunities and it's also a market that hasn't been tapped so we'd, we'd like to encourage um, helicopter operators to use the system just as much as um, jet aircraft operators. Are you finding that is the case that you are getting a, a lot of helicopter operators signing up? Uh, I think that they're taking a, a little bit of time to to get used to the system we haven't had a lot of helicopter work on there but yeah we're encouraging the operators and hope that we can have, have a large volume on there soon. How has Ramp Up been with operators? Are they all flocking to the idea? They, they, they get the picture that this is of great benefit to them? Yeah, I think at, at, at first people are a bit sceptical of anything new and I think um, now that we've people have seen a lot more coverage of the site and that we're you know putting a lot of effort into the design of the site and, and more features, we're getting a lot more um, operators come on board. We've currently got 40-odd operators on board now and I think it's more about getting people into the habit of when they actually get a charter flight you know, thinking about the empty leg and actually adding it to the site because it hasn't been done before. People don't, it's not in their mind to actually put that on the site. But I mean, we've, the site's been going two months now and um, we've had 171 flights that have gone through and there's also um, 40 flights available now. So we, even those those statistics on a, on two months are, are quite good, I think. Yeah, that is good. One of the questions that immediately comes to mind is, is who is your target audience for this? Who, who's your target market that you're um, trying to grab? Well, I think the, the market is, is everybody. I mean, a lot of business Businesses will use the system because they can um, take advantage of, you know, luxury aircraft, but also the general public. Because I mean, there's a lot of flights that have been on there for quite reasonable prices, and uh, the flights we've sold so far have been have been to the general public and and people taking their family to different locations. And the feedback we've had has been been great. They've just said one guy went from um, Sydney to Orange, and the um, the actual car hire in Orange cost him more than the private jet to fly out there. So um, <laughs> it's definitely um, we can see the potential. I mean, even the interest we you know the people that are going on the side every day is quite impressive. So uh, you guys uh, pilot yourself. You were telling us before we started the interview. Do you do any of the flying yourself, or are you you just behind the administrative side of things? Uh, these days, we're behind the administrative side. Yeah, it's been uh, a few years since we've flown actually, but we both hold commercial licences. Both um, have been previously flight instructors and, and charter pilots.
pilots and also done a lot of management in, in operations in the industry as well. Do you, are you able to give us a bit of an indication of groups you've flown with, types of aircraft you've flown, your hours, things like that, and when you started to find yourself more into management than into flying? Well, myself personally, I completed an aviation degree at Newcastle Uni, then I went straight into instructing, but I also uh, found myself involved in a, a freight charter company, which um, James was actually already involved with. So we did a, a lot of management together with that company and also flying. That, that was mainly in uh, Piper Chieftain aircraft on freight runs and also passenger charter. Uh, I've been a previous chief pilot of uh, a similar organisation which we managed. We had uh, four Chieftain aircraft and a Cessna 402 and I've also um, done some flying in a Citation Jet CJ1 and CJ2. Cool. Wow. When you're talking there about flying freight, that's uh, one interesting thing. Um, how would you go? Uh, is there any plans to expand your services here to perhaps carrying freight on uh, on empty legs if you, you, you couldn't get passengers on there? What sort of scope would you have to carrying people that don't yeah. require a drink service? I think we're probably sort of sticking to the um, the passenger side of it because, I mean, with the we're really trying to push that that luxury side and getting people into aircraft that normally they may not be able to afford to fly in. So I think I think that's the angle we're looking at. I mean, there is there is options there for freight transfers. If there's a company that needed something, you know, from A to B quite urgently, I mean, that the the site would work just as well for that. Um, but we're not sort of pushing that side. But I mean, it is it is available if, if someone needed it as well. So. And are you looking at uh, just uh, within Australia, or are you looking to uh, operate flights outside of Australia? We've had some flights on the site. I think we've had New Zealand, and uh, and I think there's one of them now Hong Kong to Sydney. I think it is. But we will oh. concentrate on Australia at the moment. But the the plan is to expand it. We've seen some of the US sites, and they don't really. They don't really provide the details that we do like they don't have a price there they don't have a lot of specific time so we want to hopefully expand this site you know hopefully worldwide eventually but i mean we want to try and um, get the market down in australia and get it working here first the reason i ask that question is uh, grant and i've talked on the show uh, not so long back where we were discussing for instance that qantas is peeling back their first and business class on a lot of their long haul aircraft yeah. and it seems to be at least anecdotally that um, a lot of that sort of traffic or, or a lot of those sorts of passengers if you like are now looking towards the bizjet type of stuff to, to do that sort of travel and we do seem to be seeing an increase in the number of biz jets that are making their way to our shores from overseas so uh, maybe that that's something that that might be a, a big bigger market for you guys in the future perhaps yeah i think it's definitely growing and we're seeing a lot more i mean you know citation 10s and these sort of aircraft are coming to australia now there's a lot of smaller jets um you know mustangs and things that are coming out this way so i think it is definitely um getting better and i, th- I think with the security these days in in airports it, it, it is quite tedious flying especially internationally mm, yes and um you know having having these aircraft around and I mean this this system we're looking at we, we don't it's a benefit to everyone we see it's it's benefit to the operators because they can you know get some revenue for a flight they're flying anyway and um, if we can get some you know some of the general public into these aircraft I mean that that may sort of turn them to want a charter so I think it's a um, benefit for the industry and everybody do you yeah. find that the bulk of your business is up and down the east coast as is the case with the airlines or do you find that you're uh, having the smaller aircraft gives you a bit of flexibility to expand beyond the uh, the usual routes uh, at the moment our the majority of our flights on offer are on the east coast um, we're working on encouraging the Perth operators and and Western Australian operators up north to include their flights we think there's just as much potential on the west coast than the east coast um, it is a different market there as they are doing a lot of crew change work where the aircraft is filled both ways but there are a lot of aircraft you know they might do a one-way freight charter and then the aircraft will return empty as well so there's definitely a market apart from the eastern states particularly as we are including all types of aircraft 
Now, Glenn, you, you gave us your, your background in aviation, but uh, James, do you want to give us yours? Yeah, I was um, actually did my commercial pilot's licence um, at the Royal Newcastle Air Club, Aero Club in Newcastle. Um, completed my private licence and commercial licence. Finished the instructor rating, which I worked for a couple of years um, instructing. Um, I got work in a, a charter company where we were doing a lot of freight services. This involved a lot of a lot of night freight. So yeah, it was very interesting flying. You, you're flying in in aircraft that really aren't they're not pressurized. So you're always flying in the weather. You're flying at night. It's it's very sort of demanding demanding flying. So it was very enjoyable. But um, as time went on, we sort of become more involved in the management side. And Glenn and myself started our own business, and and it's sort of gone from there. And this and empty debts is sort of a, a bit of a side venture, but we sort of feel it's um, got a lot of potential. Your main business is altitude aviation, is that correct? That's right. Yeah, that's our main uh, main business. It's, we're basically an aircraft broker, so we're, we're dealing in all sorts of aircraft every day. So this is where it's given us the contacts to um, to start a site like Empty Jets because we we do have contact with these people quite regularly. So just remind me, how many operators did you say had signed up? It sounded like a pretty decent number. Forty five have got signed up at the moment, um, and I think we're still we're still probably got another 40, 50 operators to get on board. And I think you know once we get them, there'll be a lot more flights on there as well. But as I said, there's been you know nearly two hundred in the last two months. So, I mean that's even on those numbers alone, it's um, quite a lot, I think, for um, you know, for a, a website that just started. So I think as people get to know it and start to use it, they'll see the advantages. What sort of lead time would you need to book a flight? I mean, uh, 24 hours is is the sort of thing, or do you need more than that? Yeah, so a lot of our flights come up um, as a last minute when there's an urgent charter. So people can always contact us on our landline number, and we can organise a flight within, say, an hour or two. But some of our flights are listed with uh, a week or two's notice, uh, which is handy. Once the um, the client actually books the flight they're actually given the contact details of the operator directly and the operators uh, sent their details as well for the customer so they can arrange the smaller details such as departure time and, and catering between themselves. Mm-hmm. And of course you're, it's not just getting you a seat or two seats, you're getting the whole danged aircraft so a bit, of, a bit of notice is handy if you want to get that group together to go um, hit the wineries or something on the way back. Yes, definitely. You, you want to make the most of the, the opportunity and I guess the more notice the better but sometimes a spur of the moment opportunity is one that will be uh, so much more memorable. And I guess you'd be getting good feedback from your clients, would you guys? Uh, I know the um, the only sort of plane similar to that that I've ever flown on was a King Air, uh, and that was many, many years ago. But uh, I, I would assume that for your average person off the street who's normally used to flying the airlines, the chance to fly in a, a pretty swank business jet would be a an opportunity that most people would take up and would find a really positive experience. Yeah, the, the people that have travelled so far have absolutely loved it. I, I don't think they realise what it is like to travel in a um, in a business jet to turn up at the terminal and have the pilot there waiting for you and um, and not lining up, you know, to, to get on the aircraft. But um, yeah, no, look, I think it's we're we're sort of developing the website now, so when the flights are rated, you can actually click on the on the aircraft and see a lot more details. At the moment, we've only got a small picture there, which is sometimes hard to see the the quality of the aircraft. And you know, when you when you're comparing, say, a Citation 10 versus the King Air, I mean, there's there's quite a lot of difference and you can't pick that at the moment but you will once we actually get the next um, uh, the next stage of the website you'll be able to click on the on the aircraft and really see some details and uh, all about the aircraft maybe even video so that'll I think that'll improve the site again that'll get the uh, the people going okay for an extra $500 I can get that yes I'll do that because that's uh, right yeah yeah, yeah the Citation cool. 10 is pretty zippy aircraft that one well the other thing we had too we, we put a, a recommended retail price which we didn't have when we started and I mean that just gives people the idea of how much money they're actually saving because when we first started a flight might go 
go on there for a thousand dollars, which looks like it's still quite an expensive flight. But when you when you see the recommended retail price might be you know twelve thousand dollars, then you, it really gives you an idea what sort of money you're saving. So yeah, and if you can get if it's an aircraft that can carry five or ten people, you're splitting the load between a bunch of you. It That's makes, right, and makes a, it a lot more easy. It is hard sometimes to get a group together, but you know I'd I'd, I'd love to fly in a Citation Ten with with my family, and then you're yeah. not you're not sharing it. And um, I have been in a Citation Ten before, and I mean people, it's just it's amazing. It's a, really a different world. So. Um, we can say that the number of members are, are growing dramatically each day, especially as we receive more uh, media coverage, and um, which we, is encouraging for us. The, the more members that we have, the more email alerts are sent out to people when flights are added. So yep. it greatly increases the chance of a sale and people actually uh, using the flights. And as more and more sales are gained, then operators will be more inclined to to put more flights so everyone will benefit. We also have a a Facebook page which we find uh, really beneficial. It's a way in which we can communicate uh, casually with our our customers and also other people that are not yet uh, members but are interested in the site and we often um, plug a lot of our, our specials and especially our, our last minute opportunities and we, we've got over 12,000 uh, Facebook fans at the moment and, and that grows uh, each week. Have you got plans, uh, like what, what are your future plans? Are, they, are you looking at adding more services or you'll have this collection of, of customers, are you looking at where you, how you could target them better when you know more about them? Yeah, I think we want to, I mean, increase our membership. Obviously, the more people we've got on, on the site, the better for everybody. Also, get more operators on board so we have more flights there. Um, but we we can see that it is a, definitely a business that, you know, it's got potential there and um, we'll keep working on it to make it better and better and um, it, it sort of combines well with our current business because we're, we're dealing in aircraft on a daily basis so we um, we add a lot of flights ourselves and also, um, you know, if an aircraft's flying, say, from Cairns to Melbourne, we're, we're trying to add a few more derivatives whether, you, you know, you can fly Cairns-Brisbane or Cairns-Gold Coast and it might be a little bit more expensive because the aircraft has to stop in there but, I mean, yep. when you st- when you look at the, you know, versus a, an actual charter, you're still, still quite a um, huge <laughs> saving, so... Okay, just uh, one more follow-up question. Guys, you mentioned the, uh, the the more mainstream media than, than what we're doing here on the podcast. Have you had a lot of exposure? Have you had, um, how have you gone trying to, to get that exposure in the, the more mainstream uh, yeah, media? Yeah, it's been quite interesting. We haven't actually really um, gone out chasing it, but we've had a lot of calls come back. I mean, we've had articles in the um, the Daily Telegraph, Sydney. We've had, um, I think, two newspaper articles, one in Adelaide and Melbourne the weekend just gone. And we're going down to um, to Melbourne to, to film a, um, a spot on Getaway on the 10th of June. So that should be quite interesting as well. So Excellent, excellent. Yeah, just looking through your list there at the moment, there doesn't seem to be a lot of flights available uh, coming around Melbourne. Is Or is that just something you found at the moment? There's not that much coming down Look, here? Look, it's very clear? sporadic. I mean, we have had flights from Melbourne, even from Sydney to Melbourne. I mean, it's You'll have times when you'll have, you know, Melbourne will just go go mad and you've got flights everywhere, then you'll have a week where you don't have anything. It just seems like it's very up and down and it depends on the um, also the, the industry at the time. You, you go through quiet times where there mightn't be a lot of flights, but then you'll go through busy times when you, you'll pick up a lot. And we found that in the past, before we had the site going, we you know, we'd have something like a Citation Mustang flying, a Sister Mustang flying from Darwin to, to Perth and we just did we just couldn't tell anyone about it because we didn't know how to get it out there, and it's you, often last minute. So you, um, you know, that's why we, we needed a site like this to really get the um, get the word out there. So well, it's an excellent website, and folks, the uh, the website if you're interested in having a look is uh, emptyjets.com.au, uh, a really well presented website too, I might say, and it lists all the flights there and uh, that are available. Actually, if you're not a member, it shows you the flights you've missed, just to give you a bit of a taster of uh, what you could have. So uh, emptyjets.com.au, guys, what's the phone number there if anybody wants to ring? Uh, the main number is one eight hundred seven four seven. 300 and um, we're available anytime if anyone has any problems or questions um, just give us a call nice phone number yeah <laughs> <laughs>
Back to the phone. <laughs> That's excellent, guys. We wish you every success with your business. It's a, it's a really interesting concept, and um, it sounds like it's uh, really becoming successful for you already. But uh, I'm really confident, uh, just looking at and having a chat to you now, that uh, this is going to be a really great business concept going forward. So, uh, uh, James Baldwin and Glenn Somerville, thanks very much for joining us this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Bye bye. And welcome back, folks. Well, Grant, what a full episode this one's been. I know. That was awesome. We, we were commenting that we haven't done a news review in ages, and how better to do a news review than to bring Ben on and have a good old chat about it all? And the great thing about having someone who actually knows what they're talking about is we can just let them do all the talking, and we can just sit back and, you know, drink coffee and stuff. Shh, dude. Dude, oh, hey. <laughs> stop giving away the secrets, yeah. man. So, folks, we are actually discussing this uh, before we recorded this episode, and we're thinking that uh, we might try and do our news format shows a little bit more in this style from now on. And we really like your feedback on that, as always, at uh, playingcrazydownunder at gmail.com. Uh, we'll try and get Ben on and some other uh, experts in, in different areas of aviation news in the region, and uh, we really think that'll add positively to the show, but we'd like to know what you think about that as well. So please let us know. Also, uh, empty jets there, Grant. That's an inter- interesting concept. I mean, it does sound a bit like a bit of an advertorial there, but uh, good luck to the guy. And, and one of the goals that we have on this show is to highlight, you know, the success stories of uh, aviation in this region. And I really think those two fellas there are going to uh, do far better out of that than we're doing out of this show, Grant. <laughs> yeah, very likely. But uh, I'm looking forward to catching up with them again in a few months and seeing how it's all going. Hopefully, uh, this time we can catch up around an aircraft. Yeah, excellent. So, uh, well, Grant, I don't know. I, was there anything else we needed to cross off the list here? I don't, I don't know. If, uh, uh, I'm just having a look on the wiki to see what we've got. I knew something. Oh. Uh, of course, it's daytime as we're recording this one today, mate, so uh, the postie is not doing the midnight run this week. Uh, so it's just a normal postie today, not the uh, special nighttime postie. Yeah, I, don't, I didn't recognise him, you know, in, in the daylight and everything, so I had to go out with my sunglasses on. Oh, that'll do it. Yeah, there you go. A listener mail I have in my hand. We have a bit of listener mail this week. Uh, this one comes in from Matt McCabe, who lives over in the US, and uh, he's got a very interesting story here and uh, sounds somewhat familiar. The email here is entitled Possible Debate Topic for the Show, and uh, I can tell you, Matt, we will take this up at some point. Uh, he says he's uh, just got uh, tuned into the show today and he's now addicted, so that's wonderful, Matt. It's a very positive addiction, Matt, and we, we hope that you don't find a cure for it any time soon. I thought that was a pretty quick addiction. One one episode and he's in. Woohoo! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I hope you didn't listen to uh, any of the early ones. Anyway. <clears throat> yes, anyhow, on with the show. Anyway, Matt tells us that he's an American pilot and also licensed uh, here in Australia and uh, lived in Budrum up in Queensland, beautiful part of the world, I might say too, between 2007 and 2009 and uh, flew out of uh, Maroochydore. Uh, he's looking to get back down under here and uh, get a flying job with a regional airline uh, and needs, needs to build a few more hours and uh, get a few more ratings by the looks of things. However, one of the things he wanted to talk about here was the uh, relative uh, cost of learning to fly, Grant, between mm. uh, Australia and the US and as folks would uh, by now be familiar that's the reason that pushed me overseas when I uh, did my flying training back in the late 80s early 90s he's saying that up at uh, Maroochydore he can pay as much as $280 an hour for a late 1970s model 172 that does sound excessive I must say yeah I know I think the last time I hired a 172 here at Moorabbin was about 185 something like that but yeah. uh, he's right though the general point is that uh, I mean he's saying here that for a twin Comanche uh, you know it can cost up to $420 an hour yep um, it's a hell of a lot of money. So what do you think about that, mate? It's, it's something we have talked about quite a lot on the show, you know, the, the high taxes, the, the uh, poor standard of uh, financing and depreciation arrangements here in this country. You know, it's really something that we should uh, put on the to-do list for an upcoming episode, I feel. I think so. I think uh, definitely one for uh, something we could make a case for an episode all about that. We've 
definitely got the situation where uh, CASA is able to charge what it needs uh, with no real justification of why it takes so long to do something, thus costs so much. For instance, one of my bugbears is that if I ran my company and just said, well, it takes seven hours to do things and uh, my cost is $100 an hour, what are you going to do about it? Uh, well, very quickly, someone else would be doing it and they'd be able to go, well, we can do it in two hours at $80 an hour or even we can do it at two hours at $200 an hour, but it's still cheaper. And guess what? People would go to them instead of me. There's no competition for air services or CASA. There's no, which is admittedly very hard to set up, but there's no justification or assessment or audit of why it takes so long and what gets done and no incentive to improve the the operations and thus reduce costs. So uh, it, it is a major issue. It was just raised in one of the downwind forums. Someone just found out that a uh, pilot's license in the US costs $2, which blew them away when they look at how much it costs us to get our licenses done. <laughs> One of the other things he's talking about here too, Grant, is uh, I actually uh, wrote back to him, uh, sent an email back and was talking about uh, my experiences and how, you know, the, the, really the only options you've got here for pilot training academies are the uh, the Qantas cadet scheme, which is extremely difficult to get into, uh, mm. and the one that Rex is running. Um, he actually wrote back to me and said he's actually been uh, on the waiting list for the Rex pilot scheme for the last four years. Wow. So uh, there you go. It's obviously, um, there's obviously a lot of people wanting to get into it. I, I'm not sure why they would be reluctant to take him. And my my personal view is too if he's uh, getting up his hours in the united states uh, despite what anybody might think here that's just a better training environment it's far busier over there depending on where he's mm. living uh you're working in controlled airspace uh well there's a lot more controlled airspace than there is here and uh as far as i'm concerned it's uh, it's just better training i might just be a little biased there because that's where i get most <laughs> of mine but uh, that's that's my view for what it's worth well that that is another um another aspect of the the whole training a- angle another another podcast we can do in the near future is um the people who are just going through building hours before they get into the um, airlines and while some are quite serious about their training while they're building hours there's a lot that have got the classic impatient just get me the hour and get on with it and that happens in the US as well as here it happens all around the world happens everywhere but it's it's the changing face of training you've got uh, the MPL and what's going to happen when more and more pilots go straight to the airlines straight out of a simulator Uh, what's that going to do and and once again you've got also got the situation of uh, these schools that aren't teaching the prospective clients to differentiate on more than just cost yes i may cost more per hour to uh, to come and fly with me but uh, for example but i'm a real instructor i've got dedicated instructors that aren't trying to just hop straight to the airlines you know all this kind of stuff that's that's the kind of things that need to be looked at. Yep, and the other thing too is, of course, that most of our uh, training schools here in the in the eastern states, and it's probably the case across in the west too, I'm pretty sure it is actually, is that all of our training schools here at the moment are swollen to the brims with uh, airline students from uh, uh, Asia and India and these sorts of places. So at the moment, the flying schools are, are doing quite well. You know, they're, they're raking the money in. Um, that makes it a little difficult for you know people you know the, your average bloke off the street that just wants to go in and uh, you know do his flying lessons because you know obviously the uh, the airlines with the big bucks their students get the priorities at these schools. My big worry is, and I think I've mentioned this on the show before, is that we're starting to hear rumours now that some of these airlines are setting up their own schools in their own countries. And I can tell you, and this is backed up by many people I know down at Moravan, if these international students disappear, that place will become a ghost town overnight. Yeah, there's a lot of international students at Moravan and other places around Australia that such as Mangalore to the north that yeah if they 
wind up finding it's cheaper to actually train in their own their own place or they can do their own style of training yeah there's going to there's going to be a lot of people suddenly hurting and uh, for the rest of us it's called RAOs mate you know I can't afford GA so I'll go off and do RA mm. and at least get my butt above the ground because yeah. let's face it for a lot of people the majority they're flying is them plus one going for a stooge so Matt thanks very much for sending an email in mate and uh, we will definitely take that up it's, it's actually on our to-do list here on our little planning system that we run and uh, we're just trying to uh, get a few more uh, people lined up so we can have a good uh, roundtable discussion about that but uh, yeah that's uh, it's it's been a bugbear of mine for many many years and i'm sure regular listeners to this show would know that uh, so we're certainly happy to take that up in a future episode a couple of other emails we got here grant just uh, briefly in passing our friend over in uh, kiwi land over in uh, i think he's over in auckland i think is errol cavett okay. and uh, he's just uh, dropped a quick line to say hi listening to the show and uh, enjoyed our red bull episode so uh, thanks very much um, I'm, I'm glad that uh, that's been well received because we put a lot of work into that one you did indeed yeah and uh just mentions that uh, he's coming across to Australia in September for a world science fiction convention. So, uh, Grant, I'm sure you'll be going to that if, <laughs> if nothing else. <laughs> well, I may, I may just have to drop by and check it out. I won't. I don't think I'll be. Well, I, I got to say, I'm not going to wear a costume or anything. I'll just go down and be myself, and most people will think I already am. Hey. <laughs> so uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, Errol says that uh, when he's coming over here, Grant, that he's going to uh, buy us a beer and, and a coffee. Perhaps. Well, hang on a minute. He wants us to buy him one. Well, we'll sort that one out anyway, Errol. Oh, God, it's just like David when he came down from Sydney. You know, we thought he was shouting us lunch. Ha! Yeah, he, right. he, he had to pull the poor broke, you know, new instructor through team. Well, <laughs> in the last, actually, uh, last time we heard from David Optimal, he's do, doing quite well up there. Where is he, Grant? In Townsville or somewhere like That's that? That's right. He's in Townsville and he's uh, back in the air training people up there. He uh, wound up going up there and got a little rocky at one point. There was some internal issues going on, but they've all been ridden out. And David's enjoying uh, getting to know northern, northern Queensland. He's been through a cyclone and uh, wow. a few other things like that. But yeah, no, it's all good for him he's he's out there they've they've got their students and they're they're out training so yeah he's got the stripes got the tie got the got the training good to hear that he got a job too he's a great young fella and uh, he's going to do really well in his aviation career i'm sure of that indeed okay one more email that we got uh, this week grant came from our friend up there at uh, point cook who works on the ramp occasionally for the museum that's vince bazina and uh, vince actually was the first ever fan that i met from the show so what a great guy yeah, I think he's still recovering. <laughs> uh, anyway, he's uh, just dropped us a line here to mention uh, an upcoming event. Uh, I think it's next year, actually. And that's the uh, DC-6 flight that's coming out here, I think, from South Africa. I uh, mm-hmm. just wanted to make sure that we are aware of that. So, actually, yes, Vince, uh, just to let you know, we are aware of that. And uh, we have been in contact with those guys. And uh, we're organising an interview for an upcoming show. But thanks for letting okay. us know. Okay, Grant. And uh, that's it for the mail. Let's move on to some shout-outs before we finish up. And the uh, first first shout-out we've got is to Damien Rose. Now, you may remember Damien. He sent us in some cockpit audio that we used a couple of episodes back. Well, we've also mentioned that Damien w- had sold his house. He and his uh, lovely wife, who's obviously very understanding and caring, uh, has agreed. They've sold the house to fund his uh, commercial pilot's training. And uh, the big news is that he is now a private pilot. He has passed his uh, private pilot license. Excellent work, Damien. Well done. And uh, I didn't think it would take you long to get that one, mate. And uh, uh, just to let you folks know that uh, Damien has sent us in some more cockpit audio. Um, just, in, just in the middle of editing that. And uh, we'll pop that one on. Probably won't be the end of this episode, but maybe uh, 34. I think we'll be able to pop that one on. But uh, Damien, well done, mate. And uh, keep sending that audio in. We really appreciate it. Okay, uh, Grant, the next shout out we want to do is to our, uh, our podcasting friend over there in the UK. 
And that's Steve Cook of the Flying Podcast. And uh, Grant, he's, uh, we just wanted to mention here that his latest episode, number 24, covers a subject that's uh, near and dear to your heart, and that's hot air ballooning. I just listened to that one last night, actually, and it's really, really interesting stuff. Oh, cool. I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing it. I haven't had a chance to listen yet, but always interested to hear what it's like doing hot air ballooning around the world in different locations. I've heard heard one of the interviews the guys from the uh, Pilot's Flight Podlog did with uh, a hot air balloon pilot there and in the US, and now to get the European view is going to be great yep and folks if you haven't listened to flying podcast it's great it's i think it's the only uk based uh, podcast dealing with aviation at least that i can find and uh, the thing i really like about the way steve does it is um he sort of does a bit of what we do which is he gets out into the field and and interviews people um so you've got a mix of hangar flying plus interviews in the field and uh this hot air balloon one um he's done exactly that so it's great to see that uh you know he's getting out there and uh you know doing the work and putting the miles on the car and doing all that sort of stuff that uh, that we do a lot of too here at this show so um, it really makes for a good show so flyingpodcast.co.uk folks if you haven't already checked it out we'd uh, we'd certainly encourage you to do so definitely worth checking all right grant and just before we finish up uh, that's it for the shout outs this week just a couple of quick mentions of course we did have in the last episode the uh, new segment controllers corner with uh, atc ben and uh, ben as i hopefully doing his homework now because he did get a fair bit of feedback on the forums at in fact our friend turb uh, who who is really a great supporter of the show and is always there on the forums offering uh, constructive advice and uh, keeping us on our toes and we really do appreciate that Turb and uh, he's actually left a, a huge lift list of questions there in the thread on the uh, controller's corner <laughs> one so uh, poor old Ben I think uh, Turb by the time he finishes working out that uh, the answers to all your questions we should have another uh, edition of that by mm, I don't know Christmas so uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah well Ben has uh, Ben has put some answers into the forums but uh, yeah no it was a quite a comprehensive list and I think it's quite clear from this that uh, young Master Turb does definitely fly for a commercial air- airline here in Australia. He certainly does know what he's talking about and uh, it's just as well that he does because he, he feeds us a lot of information that uh, brings us up to speed on things that uh, we don't know that we should and uh, we're really glad that we've got listeners of his calibre uh, contributing to the show and uh, as I often mention Grant this show is all about creating a community here uh, of uh, pilots and uh, enthusiasts so we always encourage participation so if you haven't been onto the forums yet that uh, you can click at the button off our website playingcrazydownunder.com or go directly to uh, downwind.com.au and you'll find our forum there in the pilot community and uh, also uh, a little bit of feedback that we got for Anthony Simmons episode 3 of the view from the lounge um, yes he did sound a bit grumpy folks we, got, <laughs> we did get a lot of uh, comments about how grumpy he sounded in his uh, in, in the last one but uh, it, uh, it was done that way for a reason to give a certain effect and um, some people have suggested that maybe he could uh, perhaps uh, make a more positive one the next time well I can tell you I've, uh, I've actually heard the fourth one and it's uh, let's just say you got out of the right side of bed for that one so uh, <laughs> but uh, Anthony's actually had a bit of computer trouble lately so there's a little bit of a delay in getting that one out to you but uh, as soon as he gets his computer back up and running uh, we can get those recordings off it and uh, we'll probably pop that one in episode 34 or 35 at the latest but uh, the view from the lounge Anthony's got a quite a unique uh, take on the world that's for sure <laughs> that's, that's definite <laughs> anyway mate I think that's just about wraps it up for this episode it's been another long one a huge thanks to Ben Sandylands for spending such a, a significant part of his day uh, recording that new segment with us uh, I was really happy with the way that came 
came across and um, the best part was it didn't require that much editing so it just makes my life so much easier yay lucky Steve feedback as always to uh, playingcrazydownunder at gmail.com folks drop us a line participate in the show and a particular call out to our New Zealand listeners we have been struggling lately to uh, to get uh, a lot of Kiwi news Grant um, we really appreciate we know we've got quite a, a reasonable following over there in uh, in New Zealand and um, you know this show is not meant to be only Australian based folks so if you've got some Kiwi news that you'd like us to mention on the show um, and also uh, you know New Zealand aviation personalities we'd really like to uh, be speaking to some more people from over there so we can make the show a bit more uh, broad for everyone to listen to in this region of the world that's why we always say uh, from an Australia Pacific point of view we uh, that's the way we like to have it so with that uh, positive thought in mind folks next time you're listening around the world of online aviation podcast just remember this it's what's down under that counts You've been listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer and Grant McCarran. Show notes, links to our forum, Facebook fan page, YouTube channel, and Grant and Steve's own blogs can be found on our website, www.planecrazydownunder.com, or keep up with our Twitter handle of PCDU. Comments or feedback can be left on our website or email us at planecrazydownunder at gmail.com. If you'd like to help with the ongoing production of the show, feel free to assist via the donate button on the website. Any contributions are most gratefully appreciated. Incidental music and sound effects are courtesy of soundsnap.com and title music is You Name It 5 by Brian Simpson. Production and editing by Steve Vischer. folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. Right, right to go? Yep. Well, g'day, folks, and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, the program that every week or so looks at the world of aviation from an Australia-Pacific point of view. This is it. Did I say it was episode 33? No. <laughs> I might just start that again. His blog put out, pointed out that the, uh, they've had the, the delay that uh, Boeing... Sorry, I'm just waiting for that bus to go past. <laughs> There's an edit point. Uh, ha-ha, segue. No, I'm afraid, no, I'm that's afraid a, so. That's oh, a good segue, look. mate. <laughs> no, no, it's a... It's a uh, it is a worry, um, I, and I think it's about 11 degrees here. It's almost like we've got to the hottest uh, temperature of the day. <laughs> <laughs> I see it's t- it, mate, if it's 11 degrees there, it sounds like it's time for you to go outside and uh, go, oh, love the heat. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's time for me to uh, clean, out the, uh, clean out the slow combustion stove and uh, get it ready for tonight, I suspect. Solid red light. Solid red light. Our checklist is complete. Level's good. Uh, just give me a level again, mate, please. Hey, this is Grant. How are you going? I'm sitting here in the echo room. Echo room. Echo room. Echo room. <laughs> Good enough? Just uh, give me one uh, count back, can you, please? Five, four, three, okay. two, twelve. I'm confused now. Good on you. <laughs> 
You do realise I'm recording all of this. Uh, yeah, good point. I need more material for the blooper reel anyway. Quick, Grant, fire up the blooper machine. <laughs> Ooh, a space cannon. We've already put that in last week. So. <laughs> oh, did we? I haven't heard that one yet. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you're right. To, you what? <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I haven't listened to myself yet. <laughs> sorry, I choked there. You did actually really choke? Yes. <laughs> oh, and you heard it first here on PCDU, co-host dies. <laughs> Chokes and dies on show. Yeah, ramble, ramble, ramble. Anyway. <laughs> think you can make something out of that, mate? No, I think I can make something out of that. <laughs> there you go. <laughs>